may as well get started. No time like the present. <laughs> All right, so welcome to the, God, is it the 8th? The, yeah, the November 7th edition of the MMTC monthly meeting. We're going to start with our study session, as we always do at 5 o'clock. And um, the purpose of this study session is to review our bylaws, which everybody... I just want to let you all know, in case you can hear me, that I can't hear you at all. Oh, no. On the Zoom. Testing, testing. Much better. Thank you. Christina, I don't think you can mute that, whatever that is. Otherwise, it mutes everything. <laughs> we learned this before. I know this from another meeting. I've done been fallen victim to that. Well, thank you for the technical note there. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be echoing the whole time. We'll see how that goes. I'll, I'll disregard me. <laughs> so anyway, our study session for today is to go over the bylaws of the Multimodal Transportation Commission, which all of you should have read at least at some point upon your appointment to the board. Um, if you're like me, you probably don't read it closely all the time. So Charlie suggested that this would be a good idea to go over and, and make sure that we all understand kind of what's going on. There was a, an instance recently where we actually kind of had to refer to the bylaws for an unusual situation. So no time like the, no time like the present to kind of relearn it. Uh, we have a couple newish members and possibly a very new member here tonight. So. Other than just going through it section by section, I guess, has anybody had a chance to read through it and have any things they wanted to know? Charlie, did you want to start off with any things that you wanted to point attention to? No, not in particular. I just think it's useful, and especially as we have new people who just orient ourselves to it. Yeah. And if there's things that you know, we think we need to revisit, it's be a good time to I think I could point out a couple of, of like questions that come up fairly often. Like, what's quorum? It's five. Do we need quorum for study session? No, because we don't make any decisions. And we often, I mean, for some things that have real meetings, we also aren't making decisions necessarily. So we can usually still proceed with the meeting. We just can't, you know, actually act as a board and vote. So that's kind of where quorum comes into play. The other part is um, uh, representing the board in any way. So you, you need a simple majority vote, which in the past we've done is just like raising of hands or a roll call if it's a hybrid meeting. And we've had to do that a couple of times if, if we want the chair to um, send a letter to the city commission or some other commission or give comment, for example. So that's something that's come up a couple of times as well. And then the other one is um, involuntarily resigning one's position on the board. So that's six unexcused absence, which is, I think what mean what unexcused means is that basically the commissioner doesn't notify Dave before missing a meeting. I think that's that's what it is. Yes. Oh, and I guess chair too. Okay. Where is yeah, so it's four or six. It's four for unexcused. And, yeah. And then six if they're for any reason. Excused or unexcused. We can't miss half the meetings. Right. Um, page three. So another thing I was kind of curious about because I was I was kind of flirting with the idea is can a chair serve two consecutive years in a row? I don't think it's it's happened in our history, right? But there's nothing that says it can't happen. <clears throat> 
I'm not so, Karen, I mean, Karen has also been the chair. Yeah. So you kind of had, um, you kind of rotated yeah. Um, I was strongly considering doing chair for next year, but it's going to be another infant year. So I'm not entirely sure if I want to do it now with two kids. So it seems a little bit scary. <laughs> I mean, I could barely pull together for 2020. So we'll see. <clears throat> um, anyway, so there's chair stuff. There's also, um, I think you wanted to bring up the issue of possibly consolidating a lot of boards. So if you want to go over that, that that's a uh, very interesting news. Uh, sure. Would you mind if I touched on a few other things? Oh, yeah, yeah. I noted in the bylaws when I was reviewing them. Um, uh, and you spoke uh, to a couple of these um, on section two, of, I guess it's article six about um, no board member may use his office in public representations. Um, in the same vein, I'd just say emphasize that if you ever do comment without that prior vote, you need to say you're speaking on behalf of yourself. Um, you'll see that in the paper a lot in a lot of articles. Um, just to clarify, you can probably say, I serve on the Multimodal Transportation yes. Commission, but I'm speaking for myself, right? Yep. Just if you wanna if you want to throw around your name. <laughs> yep. um, and then in Article 9, open meetings and open records, um, you know, we're part of COMA. So um, that's why you'll, you'll see in emails from like Dave or I or Dustin, don't reply all. So that's a violation of COMA when we start electronic correspondence with the whole group, so. Just wanted to point that out. Although it's not necessarily a violation of coma, is it? It's only if you don't publish what happened, right? Like you have to somehow account for any correspondence. Is that, that, we can't have any discussion, right? Um, that ever involves okay a majority or a quorum. It, okay, so because the public has to be present for the meetings, basically. And if they're not in the email chain, then they're not. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So sometimes when we have a committee, very intentional that it's uh, represents just a small fraction of us mm. as to kind of not trigger all the extra requirements that come with um, coma. That's a, something I'd like to actually touch on after Jake goes through his points, because I, I haven't thought about committees in a while, but there is some interesting things that we've heard in the past. So I want to get back to that later. Um, I think really that was it other than, you know, um, we'll be reaching out to the city manager's office to ask for a, a new appointment with a, a resignation. So, you know, we'll get to use the bylaws um, with purpose. Yeah. Um, and, and really the last thing was to go into, and at least to bring up that tomorrow night city commission is going to consider establishing a committee um, to study and make recommendations regarding all the boards and commissions. So. Do you have any um, information on who would be making up that committee? Is it all like elected officials and staff or is it members of the public as well? I believe the city commission or the city manager's memo um, describes an eight person committee, five of which are appointed by um, appointed as chairs or vice chairs of standing boards or commissions. And the other three would be at large. Um, that's just me remembering from reading that memo. Okay. That's what I think. It's a relatively small steering committee from based on city history only eight is pretty restrained it's usually like 20 and up 
Okay. Um, from what I've heard, you know, rumblings is that the strategic plan may serve to coalesce all the various boards and commissions around those, um, what are they called? The colorful blocks of the, each part of the strategic plan, like connected city. The outcomes. Outcomes. That's what call it. Yeah. It sounds like that may be part of the drive is like, well, we have this framework that sort of has, you know, categories. We could do it more efficiently, but the trick is that a lot of the boards and commissions are mandated in some way or another, right? By a funding agency or by the state or so it's, it should be an interesting process and I don't know how it'll shake out. It might, it might not go anywhere. Um, so I guess getting back to bylaw stuff, this is something that isn't even in the bylaw. So Charlie, thanks for reminding me of the committees that we've had sometimes. We have gotten criticism in the past for not having those as public as we could have. Mm -hmm. And I guess in our defense, sometimes it's just a lot easier to schedule stuff. If you can just get people to meet, you know, try to sync busy schedules together, just get something done, dive into the details. On the other hand, in the interest of public involvement, it, it would be ideal to at least make that known on some kind of schedule that like, hey, this meeting is happening if you want to be involved or at least get like, I don't know, a recording or minutes or something. I don't really know how to stride that line, honestly. And by having four or less, no, I think three or less, right? I think we've always stuck to trying to do three so that the chair That's right. can uh, dissipate without it triggering a problem. Okay. So in that case, um, where I was going with that. Yeah. So since we've always kept under the coma threshold, then technically we're not doing anything wrong or legal. It's just, it, it may not be the best optics, right? So I'm open to ideas for anybody who wants to change that or thinks we can improve in some way. Because I don't know really the best way to do that. Well, I would be curious if other advisory bodies have in their bylaws hmm. any any mention of you know rules that they have for committees. So if there you know are examples maybe of other um, advisory committees that have that, that would be helpful to get from staff. I think sustainability advisory board regularly uses a committee structure. So they might be a good example to look at because they're, they're pretty new too. You think it's in their bylaws though? I, I never looked, but it's possible they don't have it spelled out either though. Yeah. Especially if they copied and pasted from another committee's bylaws. It does seem like if our intent is to always operate with committees that don't constitute a quorum, then we should be just transparent about that. So maybe it's establishing it in our bylaws that yeah, you know, committees are to be constituted in such a manner that they don't compel us to do have a quorum and to meet them the requirements. I mean, that's a, I'm throwing that as a question. I'm saying as a statement, but I'm throwing it really as a question because it's also, I think the burden then becomes staff having to give notice and such. So I don't know how we would even solicit feedback from the public on how to do it. I mean, I guess we have enough of like a regular cast of commenters that we could probably send out some sort of targeted survey and say like, hey, when it comes to committees, when we're getting really down the weeds, you know, how how would you wish to be contacted or involved as a matter of the public, right? Like, do you just, do we just broadcast it on the city's website and say like, yeah. but then we'd have to have it in an easily public place, right? So it gets a lot harder to schedule rooms 
and staff liaisons. It's so much easier when you have three people and they can meet at a coffee shop or something. So, well, well, and the work of the committee comes before the full commission, you know, so there is the opportunity for public input at that, at that point. Yeah. So, I think another concern around committee work is committee can't talk about it. I mean, they can't talk about that with anyone else on the commission. Mm. So it gets into the, as soon as you have a committee, you have to start really being careful about, are you, you know, following the law? Yeah. So we're going to have committees. We just need to be aware of kind of those limitations. I want to give you an example of committees that so one that's coming up that would be typical is a committee that helps to organize the retreat. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a literally just need to have a few people to work with staff to facilitate kind of creating an outline or you know, the agenda. Um, often that's the chair and another person maybe, but you know, a lot of times it it is the chair looking for help other than their, you know, themselves. So it's kind of a but other committees, we haven't had a lot this year, but we have a performance yeah. uh, indicators committee that mm -hmm. we haven't really met because we were waiting I, on the strategic plans yeah. outcomes. And it's yeah. in our work plan, like the last page, we have kind of a list of different committees. Mm -hmm. I'd say there's kind of two main kinds. There's the ones that are kind of staff led or at least heavily staff facilitated, like the, the retreat planning committee. And uh, what was the other one you mentioned? Um, I'm thinking also the micro mobility. Company. That's the other one. Yep, that was very much staff focused, um, or sorry, staff led, because um, it had to. You guys had to draw on Parks and Rec and legal and all sorts of folks. But then there's ones that are very much commission driven, like the Article Nine parking and, and loading standards revision. Like that was just commission. And I think if there was to be, say, an equity committee, that's probably going to be commission driven as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do we need to define like different kinds? Because for the ones that are staff facilitated. It's relatively easy to just put a date and time in the, you know, the city's iCompass website and say, here is a special edition of the, this meeting. It's it's small, but it's public if you want to join. And, and then say other ones are like really just detail oriented committees that, you know, we're not trying to hide anything. We're just trying to be efficient and just get stuff done. So I don't know. Um, when you're advertise, advertising it to the public, does that require that you have an agenda that you Post online also. I'm not sure if you need an agenda or you just need to announce for the way that's requested to know about them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it kind of gets into this what's the minimum standard and then what's the city's kind of aspiration around transparency mm -hmm. and public engagement. I guess I would lean on staff to tell us, like, if, if you see that we've kind of danced around with committees. What should we be doing differently? You know, is there best practice? Is there some advice that might come out of the legal team even? Because that's where I kind of go into the, okay, I, I'm, I know enough that if I'm on a committee, I can't talk to anybody else about this committee work, not unless we're in a public meeting. And that's not something that I think everyone pays attention to. You know, when they get our coma training, it's not, okay, if you do this, don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, when we have emails, I often will CC Nick and Damon out of a courtesy that they're the co-chair or the chair and the vice chair. I know that doesn't break any rules. 
Um, but I think I've been doing this a little while, so I'm pretty comfortable knowing how to navigate that, but I also realize that it's easy for someone to inadvertently just screw up. I guess to summarize this discussion, I think it'd be good to at least put something in here about you know, Article 8 committees, perhaps, and, and at least just describe like what you're saying, like from time to time, the commission and or staff will find it necessary to form a smaller subset of the group as a committee to study a particular issue. It could be ad hoc, it could be long-term. And, you know, due to the number of people typically on those committees, they're not subject to coma regulations. And maybe just leave it at that, like the, the, they're not required to have the same notice and transparency and everything. But as to how we actually go about it, maybe just leave that open-ended for right now. I mean, at least it would, it would establish that, you know, we've evolved enough that we know how we typically run things, even if we don't have a clear, you know, a clear view of how to run that thing yet. Well, and maybe um, the other thing is, I mean, talked about a couple of questions that, you know, in terms of committee work, and so making sure that we ask when we do the, the coma training that those specific questions are addressed, you know, particularly for, for new members. So mm -hmm. that, so that's, you know, it's not just some kind of, you know, what generally what the, what the law is, but, you know, kind of addressing the, the committee work as well, specifically, remind, you know, and to remind everybody. You're about to say something like like Yeah, I think my only thoughts were, um, you know, the the commission that's going to study commissions that uh, they're going to be discussing tomorrow night, I think has like a four-month timeline to come back with recommendations. Pretty fast. And yeah, um, you know, according to the bylaws, if you want to make a change, it's got to be on the regular agenda and then go to city commission for approval. And I'm wondering if it doesn't uh, maybe make sense to wait and see what comes out of that committee before you wish to make changes. I fully agree. Yeah, now that we know that it's not a very long timeline, I think it's completely reasonable to just hold, especially because we have a retreat coming up and we could talk more about it then if we want to. So I, I don't feel like there's a need to rush into it at this point. Um, at the very least, maybe find out what happens tomorrow night and that'll provide yeah. some guidance. Sounds good to me. Um, there's something else I want to bring up, but. Do you think eventually, I mean, assuming this commission stays as it is, should we talk about the retreat in the bylaws and say like, you know, every year we should have one? Because I don't know if there's necessarily a requirement to have one, it's just a tradition at this point. I don't think it's bylaws. Okay. I mean, I guess I think a bylaws is more of the structure, not the content. Okay. Retreat sounds more like the content thing. I guess it depends on how much we trust future continuing leadership to to continue to schedule a retreat because I mean they do take a lot of work and if we decide like oh, this is just not worth it is that what our past selves would have wanted because <laughs> I do feel like there are some retreats where it seems like we discuss a ton and then a lot just doesn't get implemented due to whatever reason 2020 comes to mind <laughs> just because we all kind of got derailed but um, you know in other years the retreat leads to a whole bunch of new things that we plan to attack for the next year. So I don't know if that counts enough as like the structure of your year looks like this. You always start with the January or February retreat. I mean, I could go either way. I'm not necessarily. You know. I think maybe not including it in the bylaws, but I mean, it is content and there could be a separate, you know, procedures 
document that could talk about that and could talk about that we always have study sessions before a regular mm -hmm. meeting and some of those kinds of things. But. Okay. Does anybody have any other general or, or specific things about the bylaws? So regarding the election of officers, um, it does say it's a one-year term. Oh, okay. But it does not say how many times prevent us from having a chair that is reelected every year. Yeah. It's kind of what I figured, but yeah, it doesn't say anything about. I just never looked into it because we. I don't think we've yet had somebody who's willing to do it two years in a row. So. <laughs> happened <laughs> no yeah it was about to but probably not this year um thank you have a question maybe on section six of article two each member shall serve no more than two successive full terms mm -hmm. completion of an unexpired term shall not count toward the term limit mm -hmm. the i think i'm one of the longest uh standing people on the commission yeah, i'm even confused like where am I in the in the process? Because I, I know we reconstituted ourselves. And then if you didn't have a full term, then essentially you got a free ride for that, whatever your partial term was. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure how to how to determine that from what's posted online. It would make sense then to clarify, you know, terms during just the MMTC history or just transportation commission which basically just rebranded as MMTC, right? Like the bylaws didn't change a whole lot. So I, I feel like it's the same thing, just with a different name um, and a different- Well, I was representing the health department. That's right, so yeah. It was, it was a different, I mean, we changed was, everything yeah. so that we all are serving at large, not as representatives. Mm -hmm. I guess we could go either way. We should just probably clarify it. Like, do you mean two terms in the whole history of this transportation commission, which has changed? or only as the MMTC, because I would entitle you to probably a full another term, because it's only been MMTC since 2019, right? I think. This is where I get confused. And I, I think our intention is to provide some limit to how long someone can serve. And I'm not, I don't want to, you know, I'm not asking for that to change. I'm just saying, I don't even know how long I have left but it seems like it's online though, right? I mean, yeah. in terms of when it's you're not when really you're clear because the coloring is green or blue, and I don't know what that really means. Yeah. I think I saw that. I thought I saw data on which one. Yeah, I think I saw that Aaron's term is actually expiring. Like her her second full term is actually expiring pretty soon, which Charlie must mean yours are probably up soon so too, right? Twenty twenty three. Oh, okay. At the end of twenty twenty three is what the website. Oh, so you got another year. Okay. So that'll be the end of it. That's the end. Well, I couldn't say because I don't know your history. Oh, see, so that's where I'm. <laughs> so. Whether you could run again as a question or, or serve again. Whether you can be on that yeah. term. Yeah. So, 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 that's, oh. so th this is interesting, and we've had some of these issues before, but we can follow up to see when you got your appointment letters, Charlie. But the other thing I would say is it two consecutive terms. So you can wait a time off, I believe, and then come back also. Oh, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm, I'm just throwing it out there because we've done that. I We've had other boards where that's been the case before somebody takes a year or two off and then they get reappointed again. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think it would just be like, I believe my time should be coming to an end, mm -hmm. but I get 
a little confused by did all of this count or am I did I start off with a two-year term which wasn't considered a full term? I'm honestly impressed that we have to have this conversation at all given the turnover we've seen in the past couple of years. It's great that there are people who have been here long enough that we need to know, wait, are they still supposed to be here? <laughs> everybody else often doesn't make it through a full term. So yeah, that's yeah, good. Well, I'm not sure how to make that easier, but it would seem like, I'm not sure if it's a bylaws thing or just uh, how it gets represented on the webpage. It probably helped. It looks like you have to serve two full terms success successively. So if you haven't served two full terms, then you're not done yet. Well, it's up to you whether you're done. I like to finish when I start. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know, I know. Thanks. But I do want to finish. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, I think that might be something. To look into then for sure. Yeah, but having the dates on the on the web page, I think, is helpful to, to at least know where when when the term expires. But somebody's keeping track of that. I guess I have a question for while we're talking terms ending. So in terms of terms and committee work, so like I'm I'm thinking my term officially is because I'm a partial term yeah. ending end of this year, but I'm also on the climate action plan uh, steering committee. So would I just like pass off my steering committee position to a so, member? So this has happened mm -hmm. with Catherine, right? Yeah, Car uh, Carol. Oh yeah, sorry. And I was the alternate, and so I finished out. Okay, alternate her, her appointment to that committee. I think it depends on how long the committee extends past the end of your term. So I think when Catherine Schartz was on the, it was like a publicly led thing to talk about the extension of 27th Street past the Mutt Run, that was that was going to be a short term thing. So she was on it as needed. And when her term ended or she, or she resigned, I forgot, I think we agreed as a commission to just let her keep doing it because she already knew what was going on. We could have contact if need be for like another month or two. It wasn't a very long extension. But for a longer thing like the climate action plan, uh, committee, you very likely would hand off your your so Damon. Your term expires this December. Yeah, end of twenty. End of just the just the partial term. So, so then, if you're being if you're reappointed for a full term, that'll be your first full term. Right. Just getting and started. You're, yeah, you're just getting started. Yeah, <laughs> actually, haven't started yet. <laughs> sure. Just the warm up. This is what I mean. It gets a little confusing. Like, did you start with a full term or a partial term? Yeah. If you started with a partial term, then you still have eligibility for two full terms after that. Same thing for Commissioner Sharp. Well, I guess if that if that covers what everybody wanted to talk about, um, we're only at twelve. Sorry, not twelve. Twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Pretty early. Um, Charlie, I, I, I think in your email you mentioned possibly wanted to you know, sort of start discussing some of the retreat. Um, yeah, I just threw it out as, you know, so we don't end up, sometimes we've canceled our January meeting because we're needing to plan a retreat. It's like, who wants to be on that committee? And are there things we need to talk about as a group before we, you know, kind of kick it over to the subcommittee that's going to mm -hmm. organize it. And I was curious mostly with the new 
newer group, newer folks, like what would be, or if you were familiar with it, we do this, you know, it's basically a, we've done a full day retreat for the most part. And this will be the first time doing it back in person since 2019 right? or not 2020. Cause so, yeah, cause it would have been February. Yeah. I think that's when we had in the Carnegie building or something. And we've in the past, we've surveyed ourselves. Um, I can't tell you exactly the questions we've asked ourselves, but it was like, you know, how much time do we each put into this? Yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember. Everything. What decision are you the most proud of? Where do you think we could have improved in our process? Yeah. What's the, what's like your pet issue that drove you to be on the MMTC? Stuff like that. I mean, it's sort of a combination of icebreakers and homework to kind of get you in the headspace to, mm -hmm. to talk about that. Sorry, before we move too far into retreat, I realized I kind of just unilaterally sh uh, shifted us that way. Are we, are we completely out of commentary on the bylaws before we move on? Okay. I don't want to steamroll everybody here. So, um, okay. That being said, yeah, I, this is kind of calling an audible here, but I think because we have the extra time because it, it's kind of an, an odd yearly thing that we all forget about until like November. As we'll start preloading it a little bit. Or December. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we usually have a committee that usually has the chair on it, I think. Mm -hmm. when not doesn't have to be. I think usually. Yeah. Just tradition. I mean, it's kind of like yeah. under the guise of setting the agenda. Yeah. Which is partly in the bylaws, the chair yeah. has a role in that. Mm -hmm. And then basically the planning proceeds with um Dave and some facilitator who's going to basically run the meetings. Um so in the past it's been Jessica, we've had J Jeff Craig, we had Scott McCullough back in she's 2018 and Jenny O'Brien, I think, did, yeah. did it one year, right? So yeah. it's it's usually a member of the staff who's pretty familiar with multimodal stuff, probably somebody from the multimodal team, um, which I kind of forget the makeup of it, but it's a little bit of everybody. So I don't know who the potential cast is for this, but yeah, at some point, staff kind of suggests a couple of potential facilitators. Is that right? I guess we start figuring out who's who. Yeah, I guess this is your first time doing this too, so. Right, right. Yeah, and I don't have any uh, background information on how Dave comprised that in prior years. Jessica's been involved Jessica. before, she could probably help. Yeah, so normally um, it's a conversation with different staff about who has the capacity to do that in their workload and who knows enough about the familiarity of the conversations and the planning work that's happening in regards to multimodal um, work or projects. So I think the staff team usually decides who they can um, recruit to do that work based on the available team of players. I don't know that you all get any say in that because it's more on the back end about workload, <laughs> about who can who can participate and help form that agenda and set the tone for some of the conversations. Right. We've also had in the past, um, like the week before, some type of a yeah. mixer. Mm -hmm. You know, just the. <laughs> hang out as a group before we spend a whole day together. That didn't happen during COVID, but um, I think Steve Evans started that, I recall, correctly. So doing that like a week before the... Yeah, like we went to Steve's house and um, we also got to, uh, Lawrence Beer Company 
We've had. We didn't want to add Jay, Jay Wilson's one time. Dave organized that one. Okay. So. I don't recall that one. You may have not been, uh, no, you were definitely there because I talked to your wife. Okay. I remember. <laughs> but that's, it's like, you know, you might bring someone to that. And that one is sort of public? No, I. I think technically it is. Yeah. Would be breaking coma. Yeah, I think technically we have to give notice. Yeah. Give so, like, you know, a common commenter wanted to show up and <laughs> I didn't technically could. <laughs> it's an odd one because it, it's all of us and we're probably going to be talking about transportation because. I don't think you're required to let anybody give public comment. There's not really an agenda other than just to. Yeah. I mean, if you're just in. milling around a party, public comment's going to happen as a as an incidental anyway, right? Right. It, it's a very strange gray area, and it hasn't really been called into question as far as I know, even by some folks who have been critical of other aspects. So that leads me to believe that whatever we've been doing has not been bad optics. So at least that's my naive viewpoint. <laughs> so. Anyway, I guess the next steps are probably going to be to select some kind of retreat committee, start um, to check an availability of potential facilitators, potential uh, uh, venues for it, and then starting to set the agenda and get a date on the calendar. It's usually January or February, kind of depends, but and sometimes it replaces one of those meetings and sometimes it's in addition to, kind of depends on how much is going on on our calendar otherwise. and. I don't have a good sense of how busy our next three months are calendar-wise, so I don't know if that's going to be a replacement or an in-addition-to thing. But Dave will be back in a month or two. I think the plan is to come back next month for the meeting, but not going to promise that. Okay. <laughs> Can't say for certain. Okay. You're not promising he's coming back. <laughs> yeah, but not for the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Might be coming back, but maybe not. So yeah, usually we do this during the, a regular meeting. I think it's just maybe good to kind of get it out during a more informal session like like this in case anybody has any questions on like what goes down usually. I feel like what's most probably useful is at the end of the conversation or the end of the retreat, we do seem to create what we regard as a work plan and then that gets crafted to present in a public meeting where we take a vote on it and that takes a little bit of time yeah so feels like that's that's the direction the retreat has taken in the last couple of years yeah it's sort of coalesced around that idea of a deliverable yeah. which is i feel like is a little bit better to focus our efforts instead of being just overwhelmed with choice you know yeah well that's been the driver for the agendas you know exactly that came up on that and and also for the study sessions because those were included as well right because we always have the the agenda items that are going to be kind of as a matter of course anyway like well just design check plans for Lawrence loop blah 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 but then for stuff that's maybe not an urgent deliverable um we try to start checking off that list of work plan items as 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 doable so yeah I would say that that's probably the one of the most important outcomes of a retreat. Know what we're doing. Well, I think, I mean, Jessica, maybe you can, because you did last year, right? So, I mean, we had the document from the year before, and then I think that Jessica or staff or the team then took that document and then updated it and added to it based on what came up. Um, during the during the retreat, so it wasn't 
because there were some things that continued over from the year before, but then there was some new things added on. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And sometimes we just know, like we just know there are some things happening because it's MPO planning work happening. So it's relevant to your work or there's specific capital projects that have planning elements or um, design processes to them. So that helps. So, all right. Well, I don't think there's really much more to talk about in the retreat that, like I said, it's usually a regular agenda item. So we can just leave it till the December meeting, right? Which hopefully everybody will be here for. We'll get to decide on a group. And I think it would just be if anybody's interested in taking on being part of that committee. Yeah. You know, there's there's an opportunity coming for that. So. It can be a good opportunity for folks who are new too, because it kind of gives you an opportunity to sort of insert your passions into the conversation and start to drive the agendas a little bit, which, you know, especially if you came in here with a, a particular ambition, that's a great way to start tackling that. Hi. Hi, sorry, folks. That's okay. This is, that's all right. This is probably a good time to do introductions, actually. Perfect, <laughs> so, perfect timing. Sorry to throw you directly into it, but. Oh, no, of course. <laughs> oh, all right. It's a pleasure to meet you all. Yeah. Nice to have you here. Thanks for joining at uh, last notice here. So yeah, absolutely. No, happy to happy to be here. I've been living in Lawrence the last five years. So um, I've always cared about public transportation and wanting to get more active in the community. Um, I don't know how thorough you want me to be for an introduction. Uh, what is your, I guess, day thing? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I just graduated from the University of Kansas. Um, I'm from Topeka originally, so I frequented the area my entire life. Um, but I just graduated. I'm currently uh, the data and policy analyst for Kansas Action for Children. Um, we're a nonprofit that does child, um, children's based ad, children and family based advocacy across the state. Um, so I work for them during the day. Um, but I do that mostly remote. So I, you know, work and live in Lawrence. Uh, today, I actually have to go to Topeka, though, which is why I'm a little late. Fair enough. <laughs> Let's see, is there any other? I'm trying to think about on the fly as we do introductions, what we would like to know each other. Obviously, name. Yeah, I guess how long you lived in Lawrence is good. What your day thing is, whatever that may be. And what's your, if you have kind of a specific pet issue or just a general interest in kind of what drove you to be here. So. Uh, I think you covered everything. So thanks for joining us here. Um, do you want to go next, Laura? Yeah. I'm Laura Bennett, and uh, I'm a physical therapist. I've lived in Lawrence over 30 years. And, um, you know, I have an interest in uh, mobility issues for, for everyone, but particularly pedestrian issues, bikes, bicycling, or all of that is very interesting to me. So. Oh, and how long have you been on the commission? Oh yeah, I joined uh, in June. Well, just newbie. <laughs> I am Pat Collette, and uh, I've been on the commission um, since January of 2021. And um, I'm retired from the University of Kansas at the Transportation Research Center. Um, I was there for 45 years or something like that. <laughs> and uh, I've been in Lawrence longer than that, so. <laughs> Came here to go to school and kind of never lost. Um, what drove you to be on the commission? Well, I mean, just a lot of interest in bike path. I'm a cyclist and 
and um, you know very interested in infrastructure for both bike ped and and also my work at the transportation center was primarily in public transportation so I have have an interest in that although that's we we kind of cover that separately there's a public transit advisory committee that uh, yeah so very interested in the um, you know the accommodations for iPad. And how long have you been on the MMTC? Since January of 21. So this is ending my second year. Thanks. Okay, I'm Charlie Bryan, and I've been on MMTC since it was uh, formed. I can't tell you the date of that. 2017? October 29, or October 19 was MMTC. Okay, I've been doing this too long. That's what I can tell you. You've been on it before it was MMTC. Yeah, yeah. I was on the um, pedestrian bike issues task force that recommended the formation of a transportation commission. So um, I've been doing this for a while. Initially, it was related to my work at the health department uh, here in Lawrence. And at that time, my role there was as a community health planner. I'm now a business systems analyst, but those early years of my time at the health department um, got me pretty involved in a lot of the issues around biking and um, walking. And uh, I think I've always been interested in that sort of thing. My undergraduate degree is in urban planning. And then I came to KU to get a degree in public administration. So I like public policy and I like planning. Um, I think I covered everything. I think it covers it. Yeah. I'm Will Sharp. I've been in Lawrence since for 11 years, I guess. And for all of that time, I was a teacher as of last year, though I stopped teaching. I'm actually back in grad school um, for urban planning. Yeah. So I've really been enjoying that. That's just started again in, in August. I've been on the MMTC since just June as well. So finishing out my first partial term. And I think uh, definitely an interest in biking and uh, pedestrian infrastructure, as well as I have a young family. So thinking about future um, improvements to those sorts of things. And I'm online. Thanks. I'm Damon Balchowska. Um, I've been on the commission since October of last year. Um, I've been in Lawrence 11 years now. I came to KU for architecture school and graduated in 2015 and was able to find work to stay here. I love living in Lawrence. Um, um, yeah, I'm on the commission uh, a little bit selfishly because I bike as transportation around town a lot. So I have skin and bone to be here. <laughs> I think it's everything. Yeah. Um, I'm Nick Kuzmiak. I'm the current chair. You're the coach or the vice chair, by the way. Um, and uh, fun fact, Damon used to be my neighbor, and he's the second person on MMTC who I live two doors down from, which is crazy. So it's a small town. <laughs> um, I'm not originally from here. I'm from the D.C. area, but I've lived in, Kent in, uh, in Lawrence for five years, um, and I've been on some commission or other for almost all those five years. Um, that's kind of what drove me to here in the first place is that I um, my dad is a transportation planner and, like, an engineer and policy guy, and he's been kind of drilling, like, man, you know, transportation and planning are so linked together. People just don't get it. Like, yeah, whatever, dad. And it took me forever to kind of, it didn't really hit me until I lived in Houston. And I saw just how bad it can really get. <laughs> like, man, this is terrible. <laughs> I started going to meetings about 
walkability in Houston, which was just a strange concept to begin with. But once I came to Lawrence, um, I realized, man, it is so much easier to get involved in the government here. So like, let's take some of this time I have and actually try to make a difference. So um, it's been a cool new a passion that's turned into or a hobby turned into a passion, basically. Uh, during my day job, I'm an environmental engineer. So I work with wastewater and biogas stuff. Um, so it's a little bit different, but I think that's it. Yeah. Oh, and I've been on, yeah. So since 2019, I'd say like late 2019, I started on the public transportation advisory committee and then got sent here as a representative of that. And then we quickly rebranded as MMTC and I became just at large. So yeah. I've been here for a while. We have a couple of other members who aren't, wait, well, let's see, one, two, three. Aaron's not here. Aaron's not here. And she's been on for a while since the beginning. Yep. Yeah, I think Aaron and I are the and that's it. two longest. Yep. And then we have one open position as of a few hours ago. Who was so, that? Althea. Oh. Yeah, she's off, unfortunately. So, oh, well. But, yeah, this is a good use of our time, I think. We've got to go over things we normally don't. Um, so, bylaws, retreat. And just, just a quick recap. I know it's going to be kind of drinking from a fire hose for a while here, but... Um, the bylaws, hopefully you've gotten vaguely acquainted with them. They're not super prescriptive or detailed. It's just basic, you know. Right. Form is five out of nine. There's a chair. There's a co-chair. There are terms. Um, and coma. You'll probably have to take coma training at some point. I think that happens at our retreat or early in the year. I think we usually have that as part of our regular agenda. Yeah, I think early in the year. Yeah, so that's the Kansas Open Meetings Act mm -hmm. where you have to basically learn how to be transparent to the public. So, and then we'd start talking about the retreat. We have one every year. Um, it's a good way to kind of jump in feet first to any commission. And it happens in January, February, where we talk about kind of what's gone on in the past, what we liked, what we didn't like, you know, accomplishments, what's coming down the pipeline, what's next, and setting our goals for the next year to try to figure out, you know, what we're going to try to tackle based on our interests and what's happening in the city. So. Awesome. It's a quick recap. And I think that brings us to the end of our study session. <laughs> Is there anything else? That's a public comment. Oh, okay. Sounds good. JT Thorndale. Oh, JT. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. Um, I suggest when you're planning for the retreat that you avoid the Carnegie building because there's no bike parking there. Um, I suggest perhaps uh, the Santa Fe Depot. And I'm, I'm hoping that it will be recorded when it was held at the Carnegie building against my recommendation because there is no bike parking there. I was invited to speak and I appreciated that very much. I would have done so if it were recorded. Thank you. Thanks, good to know. I think we've done it at both places. Yeah. Yeah, it's usually done at some place that is not here, just to kind of yeah. we'll break it up a little bit. The Baker Wetlands there. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll be up to the planning committee. What do they call it? <clears throat> yeah, that's the committee. Just yep, that's their problem, which is probably going to be my problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, cool. Well, in that case, um, let's adjourn for now and get back at Six. Is that enough? Six six fifteen is when our okay. meeting's supposed to begin. Yeah, and we probably shouldn't be.
messing with that. So, all right. See you in a, in a bit then. No, we're I'm Jake Ball. Shall we get started? Anybody here, right? All right. Kurt, are you good to go? All right, cool. Welcome, everybody, to the November 7th edition of the Multimodal Transportation Commission's meeting. Um, we've already had, had our study session at 5 o'clock, and now this is our, our regularly scheduled agenda. Since we are now live, we're no longer calling roll, but we do have quorum. So are there any rules that we need to lay down before we start? Or <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Chair. Uh, yeah. Everyone's got a few housekeeping rules uh, for the hybrid meeting. Um, this meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you're not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to you, Chair. All right, thank you. So we've already done agenda item A, study session. We're moving on to item B, approve the minutes. So we will be approving the minutes from the October 3rd MOTC meeting. Does anybody have any questions or comments? on the minutes as they are currently presented. And if not, I would entertain a motion to approve. So moved. Okay, motion by Commissioner Brian. Do I have a second? Second. Second by Commissioner Collette. Christina, can you please call roll? I think it's how we still do it, right? <laughs> At least for votes. Sure. Brian Risa? Here. Laura Bennett's here. Well, sure. And actually, uh, yes or no? Yes. Right. Yes. It's a yes. Oh. <laughs> Laura Bennett's. Yes. Aaron Payton is absent. Pat Collette. Yes. Charlie Bryan. Yes. Nick Kuzmiak. Yes. Motion carries. Okay. Thank you, everybody. We'll now move on to the, the general public comment. I'm just go over the spiel here on, on the agenda. The public is allowed to speak to any items or issues that are not scheduled on the regular agenda. Public comment will for staff items, commission items, or calendar. Each person or organization will be limited to three minutes. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss nor debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented at this time. Individuals are asked to come to the microphone, sign in and state their name and address. Speakers should address all comments to the commission. Do we have any public comment from people in the room on just general items? Yep. You can come up to the podium, please. Hi, my name is uh, Bill Steele. Uh, I live here in Lawrence. I've read the uh, TREK uh, guidelines, and I'd just like to comment specifically on the um, proposed bicycle policy. In that case, I would ask you to hold till agenda item two, please, because that's when we'll be receiving specific comments on that agenda item. Okay. Yep. I'm sorry. I jumped the gun. Okay. Sorry, I'm still <laughs> glad you're here. We just can't do it quite yet. <laughs> Thanks. Are there any general public comments online? Someone's raising their hand. Yep. 
Can you hear me? Yep. Um, my comment is on the calendar. Are you, you saying that is never a subject for public comment? You know, this is kind of a gray zone, to be honest with you, because we have had public comment in the past on things like staff and commission items. Um, it's technically not in our bylaws to not have comment on it. I don't personally have an issue with it. Is there anybody else in the commission who'd like to comment on whether we can do calendar stuff? All right. Yeah, we'll do it. It's it, this, you know, kind of more an exception than the rule, but we're good to go. So feel free to explain your comment. Okay. I see that public in you want it now or you want it during calendar? That was fine. Okay. I, well. I see that public engagement has been dropped from the future study sessions. Um, public in, future study sessions. Uh, area of the calendar um, the uh, public engagement is a development i believe from the it's your turn sessions which came out of a fiasco that none of you probably know about at the time that the senior resource center was on its way to opening there were two of the mmtc commissioners on that board one of them is 100% responsible the fiasco that developed over bike parking. One of them is was 100% responsible for the it's your turn sessions that resulted from was Carol. You go back and look at the uh, recordings. She persisted until that was included in the MMTC. I suggest you think carefully about dropping public engagement. Thank you. Good. Thanks. Okay. Is there any other general public comment from online? Okay. In that case, we will move on to one sec here to our main agenda, Part D. So, it's gonna be receiving staff presentation, street maintenance program, and provide feedback on proposed bikeway improvements. So it doesn't sound like there's any action, we're just gonna be having a discussion on this, right? Correct. Yeah, and Steve uh, Lashley is online to present this topic. All right. Good evening, uh, I'm Steve Lashley. I'm a senior project engineer with uh, municipal services and operations. Uh, just to, you know, um, the approved street maintenance budget for 20, approximately $9.4 million. Uh, each year, uh, staff uh, reviews the bikeway map uh, to identify bikeway improvements uh, that typically include pavement markings such as marked shared lanes or shares and uh, bike lanes. Uh, we utilize uh, the uh, level of comfort uh, model and matrix tool to identify recommendations uh, for those inclusions uh, with the street maintenance work plan. Um, we, and then the attachment there has the uh, summary of the recommendations um, for you all to review and uh, if you had comments on, but I wanted to also note that uh, staff is also working on a long-term, more of a five-year street maintenance plan 
Um, the plan is dynamic such that uh, it's based on uh, proposed budgets, uh, which vary obviously from year to year. Um, and uh, it's based on updates and changes um, uh, on the plan based on uh, data and um, for example, and other collaborative uh, type of uh, work, which might be water line or storm sewer or sanitary sewer work that might be um, occurring or planned along a uh, similar corridor that needs a street uh, street maintenance activity as well, like a mill on overlay, what have you. But we try to uh, utilize a corridor concept with that uh, and do the work of, uh, at the same time. But with the ever-changing uh, environment, um, construction costs have been increasing, and so our dollars being stretched a little bit thinner, but ultimately um, these are the types of factors that impact uh, long-term planning. So it is an ever-changing map, but we're um, working uh, to progress further on uh, getting those um, five-year and beyond identified for planning purposes. And uh, if you all had any questions on the proposed recommendations, I'd like to open it up if you have any questions. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, Steve. Um, let's start with the commission with any you know, sort of technical clarification questions that you may have. And then once we get those done, we'll move to public comment. Have a question. So for the 9th Street, Iowa to Avalon and then Avalon to Illinois, can you help us understand why is the, why is this two separate rows? Is it just the bikeway facility is different as we cross Avalon? Correct. Actually, uh, from approximately Illinois to uh, about it's a little bit east of Avalon. There is an existing uh, conventional bike lane and that will be um, uh, reestablished with the uh, proposed work in the middle and overlay type of work along that corridor. Um, west of there, there is no existing facility uh, currently. Um, based on the matrix tool, the recommendation to get a uh, what would be the goal of level of comfort uh, of three or better uh, would be a uh, a uh, shared use path or a protected bike lane, uh, which would attain a potential level of comfort of two. Uh, so at this current time, without with these types of street maintenance projects, um, there's no major geometric changes, widening of the streets, things of that nature um, that would be able to uh, accommodate a, a shared use path or protected bike lane at this point in time. I guess I have a follow-on question on, on that then. Um, so when we're talking protected bike lane, what's the increased geometry on that compared to just a white stripe on the road? Well, the width, it would add a couple feet, um, let's say buffer between what you try to establish as a bike lane width, um, you know, recommendation would be to have at least a five foot bike lane plus, you know, a couple foot buffer. Uh, so, and then it would end up uh, tightening up the driving lane as well. We believe that the uh, future um, 
uh, you know, future geometric improvement or widening, you know, the right away or getting a shared use path. I mean, there are, there's challenges with retaining walls, things of that nature that are along the corridor, there would be obstacles uh, and cost prohibitive, you know, in a street maintenance activity such as this. Right. So I understand going from Avalon West because th that's where the hill is and there's some yes. major physical challenges there. Um, I guess I'm more referring to Avalon East where there's already a, a, a bike lane on either side. So I was asking about uh, protected bike lanes, not necessarily buffered bike lanes. And I think my understanding oh. is that all that makes a protected bike lane is just that there's something there, whether that be the collapsible yellow bollards or a curb or something. So yep. how much additional width would be required for that? Yeah, Chair, we haven't gone into an analysis on that to, to move to a protected um, bike lane yet. Um, a protected bike lane is going to consist of a horizontal separation or a buffer plus a, a vertical component okay. as well. Depending on what that vertical component is, you know, do you have some curbing in there? Do you have bollards? That's really going to affect what your section would look like. So we haven't gone through that analysis. So it does seem that then, given the fairly tight right away here. There's not really too much that can be done geometrically with the bike lane. It kind of, this is probably the best we're going to get without a major, major reconstruction, right? Right. With a road maintenance project, reestablishing the existing it is what we're recommending. Okay. That's what I thought. Thanks for clarifying. Anybody else in the commission have questions for Steve? I don't know if Jessica's still on the line. Or she already gone. I'm just, I, I can recall there being discussion about a way to build a bike, a, basically a climbing lane uh, for cyclists that are going up the hill. And then on the down uh, side, it just being a shero, uh, because most cyclists would be able to ride at the speed of traffic or close to closer to the speed of traffic. And so I don't see how that would this seems like a good opportunity to consider that. I didn't know that had been ruled out or had it been considered. Um, Steve, please jump in if I get something wrong. Um, we, we looked at to um, what the geometrics would look like to add to bike lanes, what that would look like with the roadway section. And you essentially end up with um, using the gutter space. Uh, probably not ideal on that grade with that amount of traffic. We didn't look into that specific scenario with a climbing lane on one side and sharrows on the other. Um, obviously, if you're using sharrows on the, the downhill side, that kind of opens up some of the section. So right. that was the, I think, I don't know who, this was either in a consultant's report or somewhere but it was a proposed way to solve the problem with that street. Cause we would, people could, they need the space to ride separate from vehicles. And so the a climbing lane was kind of, was seen as a good way to accommodate that. And then not putting a lane on the other side of the street, just people would ride in the, in the you know, lane with traffic. Um, Jessica may want to jump in here, but I, I would, want to refer to the, that matrix or level of comfort to see if sharrows are appropriate um, given the speed and volume because they might not be an appropriate application for our policy. The, the current thing is no no sharrows, no mm -hmm. lane, right? Mm -hmm. So then it could just be a single lane on the climbing side of the street and no sharrow at all. Potentially, we'd have to look into that, I think. Uh, I don't know if Jessica wants to add yeah. into that. 
So that, Charlie, you're right, that came about in our previous countywide bikeway plan that had been developed by consultants where they looked at a couple locations where we would have limited um, right away within maintenance projects, but also elevation where climbing lane would be appropriate. And we didn't call out that specific facility type in the new bikeway plan, but I think it still is a viable design option, assuming that um, it's something that um, engineers want to explore and you would like to explore. I think Jake's right though. I think you would need to look at the, based on the speed and the volume and determine where that falls in terms of understanding what the impact that may have to level of comfort. I'm not sure our level of comfort model also is sophisticated enough to, to do like climbing lane versus both bike lanes. You know what I mean? So there's some assumptions that would go into that about, um, adding that as a facility, it would probably just have to be marked as bike lanes, right? There's not a category for climbing bike lane, but as long as you realized that going in, it could be something you consider. Well, I was also just wondering that create enough space to provide a protected bike lane for people that are going up the hill. It does appear that the curb to curb with west of Avalon well, there's a bit of a bulge where there's that center turn lane in between the kink and the Avalon intersection. But after that, it, it seems like fairly wide car travel lanes that if they were squished together to one side, you could conceivably open up enough width to have a protected bike lane. But I I don't have any measurements on me, of course. So um, I guess I, I would add to Charlie that I would like that to be investigated if possible, because at least for me, back when I used to live on the east side and work sort of on the west side, I could have liked to work if Ninth Street wasn't such a mess um, and kind of dangerous. It was just, man, if this one lake was there, then it'd be so much easier to traverse east to west. And I assume I'm probably not the only one, especially because it's kind of on campus almost. So I I think if we can at least try something, um, you know, working within the confines of the given right of way, of course, I think it'd be worth looking into if, we, if at all possible. Any other technical questions from the commission? I was going to ask about the possibility of rearranging the flat geometry within the curves, but I think with this most recent example discussion, we've kind of covered that actually. It sounds like there are opportunities potentially to reconfigure where lines are on the street to be able to, you know, maybe do a road diet, for example, or, or add a bike lane if there's really, really wide lanes. So it sounds like that is a potential thing to do. I don't know if, if I really see any opportunities in what's currently presented to do that. That would really make sense, but you know, it's good to know that, that we have the option. I realize that we're limited to actually, you know, like I, adding a shared use path is probably not going to happen or widening the road to fit more stuff in it, probably not going to happen, but at least we know our limitations now. I was going to say. I was also wondering, I see there's two different Sixth Street projects, both from, uh, from Iowa to Monterey and Monterey to folks. There's not the one from Iowa to Mastery, which is mentioned in the CIP agenda item three. So since that, that appears to also be a maintenance project, is there any distinction here as to why that wouldn't be included in the street maintenance program? It's a different funding source. Um, again, this is Steve Lashley, uh, senior project engineer. Uh, separate funding sources, uh, CIP type of project. Um, 
it does impact the overall street condition and so forth, but it is a different funding source and that is already um, in the works and being designed um, and had uh, uh, previously done to commission well in this last year. So it's been more of uh, 2022 initiated and coming up uh, in 2023, but it, there is a shared use path that is going to be installed with that from Wisconsin to Ohio Street, or excuse me, I, Iowa Street um, to Wisconsin and following that priority uh, uh, funding route. Mm -hmm. That takes it to fifth street. I think in that case, I might save those questions for agenda item three because that's what it falls under. So, okay. Any other questions before we move to public comment? Okay. Well, in that case, I would invite any members of the public who wish to speak to this specific item to um, yeah, state your comment. Anybody in the room? Okay. Anybody online wishes to make a comment on this item? See anybody? Okay. We'll bring it back up to commission. Any further discussion? Any feedback that we'd like to provide? I think we have one item down already, and that was to possibly investigate this this odd hybrid unmodelable bike lane climb lane combo on on Ninth Street. Yeah. Well, one comment I have just looking at Ninth Street now. Um, the existing bike lane on the north side kind of ends. I think there's a sign bike lane ends ahead. Um, I think it just happens to end where the street gets too narrow. Um, but as long as we're going in and repainting, maybe if we could look into making that a bit more methodical. I mean, if that spits you out somewhere onto a sidewalk or a crossing instead of um, just kind of it, how it is now is a little abrupt if there's a way, like as long as we're going in and repainting it to do that a little more, uh, thoughtfully, that'd be awesome. Okay. This is Steve Lashley. I'll just quickly uh, follow up with that. We'll, we're going to be working with a consultant and we, uh, We'll discuss that with them and looking at the new stand, you know, if there's any design standard changes, things of that nature, we'll uh, review that for, uh, you know, the bike lane, um, you know, alteration, you know, for the termination of the bike lane, what have you, uh, how it tapers. Yeah. Uh, get with them on that. Thank you. Yep. Okay. I have a comment. It's not more of a question, I guess, but it's not on the list of bike facilities. It's just more generally on the street maintenance on the map. Mm -hmm. Is that appropriate time to bring it up? I mean, we are the multimodal transportation okay. commission and cars are mode. <laughs> so Steve, I just see on the map, 11th street is going to be says reconstruction or new. I'm not sure if I'm reading the legend correctly. It's a dark blue, but it's also close to the color of overlay. It is reconstruction. Okay, so I notice there is um, pretty significant dirt path along the south side of the block. Um, 
on 11th Street between Indiana and Louisiana. And that just seems like it's a need for a sidewalk. I imagine there's a lot of people walking up and down 11th Street. I don't know for sure, but that path indicates there's a lot of walkers right there. Is there any chance that there could be a sidewalk put in that side of the street? It, it is a CIP project, so they'll be looking holistically at the corridor for bike pet improvements as part of that. And, uh, you know, jumping into later conversation, you'll, you'll be seeing the concept plans for that. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Well, if there aren't any additional comments, we'll close this item and move on to the next one. So thank you, Steve, for your time and your answers. Thank you. Let's go to number two. We will be receiving the draft bicycle and pedestrian design policy and guidelines and provide feedback. Yep, um, we've got uh, Stephen online with Trek as well as Ton here in person to, to present and uh, discuss tonight. So I'll turn it over to Stephen. Hello everyone. Um, happy to be here this evening to present these guide the guidelines to you. Um, I believe everybody's had a chance to go through them. I've got a, a short presentation just to kind of keep us in line following the outline of the um, of the guidelines to run through um, for comments. Is it okay if I go ahead and share my screen? Should be okay, yeah. Maybe. All right, so uh, this is following up on our presentation that we gave in September. Um, as we've already been introduced, uh, myself and uh, Ton uh, from Trek Design Group, of, uh, our team has been working on uh, developing these, these guidelines specifically for the purpose of looking at policies directly related to crossings and how to mark crossings in the bicycle pedestrian infrastructure in Lawrence. So starting with uh, pedestrian crossings, um, one of our recommendations uh, is following FHWA guidance to have crossings placed every four to six hundred feet to discourage jaywalking. This is typically in places that have higher pedestrian volumes or shorter block lengths. Um, it kind of follows the same process as uh, how we, we used to design cities. Your city blocks used to be much smaller, and um, in that configuration, your, your distances were a lot shorter for each one of the crossings. Um, following ProWag, KDOT has adopted ProWag uh, guidance, design guidance, and so um, using that as a, an outline to follow uh, for ADA accessibility. Your crosswalk width should accommodate the volume of your crossing. So um, your standard crosswalk width, I've got the standard details from Lawrence up on the screen. Uh, six foot is your minimum width, and those get wider based off the volume of pedestrian crossings. And if you have pedestrians and bicycles also crossing the same place, that, that also makes those uh, wider. 
Your high visibility continental style crosswalks are typically going to be placed at uh, intersections that have arterials meeting other arterials or arterials meeting collectors, collectors meeting collectors, or mid-block and school crossings that are um, not at typical places. So a mid-block crossing is not your standard crossing location. So having a higher visibility for those crossings is typically a, um, a general uh, practice. And then school crossings uh, to try to protect our, our children going to school. Your parallel line style crosswalks, um, sometimes you use these along things such as a, a arterial corridor uh, where you're placing them at the where the local streets are meeting the arterial corridor to provide higher visibility to pedestrians that are crossing streets that have high volumes of turning vehicles onto the local streets and at local controlled intersections so a local street um, that is meeting another local street controlled by stop signs or traffic signals um, when you get into a lower volume residential uh, intersections, even if they are stop controlled, uh, the need for a crosswalk isn't um, isn't necessary. Your your speed and volume on those streets, if as they're designed, should not uh, really warrant the need for those type of devices. So, a mid block crossings. Um, uh, this is just kind of a over uh, just a general image to kind of show some of the things that come into a mid block crossing. You have your your uh, stop here for pedestrian signs or yield here for pedestrian signs. Um, it's generally recommended that if you are um, going to use stop control for mid block crossings in one place that you have that consistently throughout your network that changing from yield yield here for pedestrians and stop here for pedestrians can cause confusion and it typically creates enforcement issues on the, the law enforcement side. Um, having your stop bars placed um, you know four feet back from a from a crosswalk and if you have multi-lane crosswalks you're going to go 20 to 50 feet back to allow proper sight distance around another vehicle that may be uh, stopped at in the inside lane. Uh, your pedestrian crossing contextual guidance is from your, your current bike plan. Uh, this table gives you an idea of how uh, really flexible these different items are. You have uh, them listed as most desirable and then you have engineering judgment and things that are not recommended. Uh, this gets into trying to adapt to the context when you're developing tools um, that need to be this broad it's it's really hard to refine them down to a small level so using this as kind of your starting point for your planning and then you have uh, things to, to get into more detail to understand like this needs to be a place where you're going to have a, a hybrid beacon or um, or a hawk signal or you're going to have a re rapid rectangular flashing beacon and where you're going to use one of those over the next Shared use path crossings. Now, shared use paths are pedestrian facilities that are also uh, bicycle facilities. So they're not independent for one or the other. Uh, usually you're going to uh, use pedestrian markings at these crossings. So all pedestrian crossings are, are designed for the highest safety for a pedestrian who's usually your most vulnerable user crossing the street. Uh, the white markings going across the street for a continental crosswalk 
Um, your crossings are going to be wider because you're going to have you're going to have wider paths. You're typically going to have higher volumes, and if you have bicycles going uh, contraflow to each other, then you, you need additional space so that you can reduce the friction. You can reduce any type of occurrence of, of conflict between those um, motions going across the street. The uh, signage is going to follow your your typical signage for a, a pedestrian mid-block crossing, and your um, all your signals and your other mid-block infrastructure is going to follow the the chart that we looked at on the last slide. You're going to enhance this um, by the four lay cross section that's shown currently on the street on the on the page right now is from a, a FHWA guide. But in this occurrence, you know, I would say that one of your your things you would try to do is try to actually um, create a some type of pedestrian refuge median, if you could, or some type of pinch point there to to further restrict the vision of the motors as they're coming in. If you create constrictions on the road as you're approaching something, then people tend to slow down naturally. Um, so your shared use paths and your crossings for shared use paths are all, are going to follow the same standards as pedestrian crossings, just at a higher volume for a pedestrian crossing. Uh, there are occasions where um, a few cities have started using some green paint for these crossings, but that is typically when they have a shared use path that has a designated space for bicycles only and pedestrians only. And that is where they're they're trying to manage the conflict between the bicyclists and between the pedestrians because they have such a high volume of both and the bicycles are traveling at much greater speed than the pedestrians. Your on street bicycle crossings uh, track. We've developed this chart to give a an easy tool to on how you should apply or at least start the conversation of how to apply these markings at different intersections. And so this lays out where um, you should put a green paint. Green paint should go into the areas that have the highest uh, utilization. So you have the most conflict between motorized vehicles and bicycles. You want to draw more attention to these areas and make sure that everybody understands who um, is occupying what space. As you go through the chart, you move into chevrons, uh, which are um, for an arterial would be on a minor driveway. So major driveways are things like if you have large scale shopping malls or shopping centers, um, some high schools, depending on the size of them, uh, could, could warrant uh, the green markings. And as you go down to a local street, um, you're, you're gonna need less markings going across uh, those, those individual crossings. So collectors um, meeting an arterial would use green paint and a collector at a collector would follow chevrons, so on, so forth through that, that chart. Um, you want to have a hierarchy of these markings to make sure that people understand um, they have a, a conditioned response to the changes. So on a high volume street, you want somebody to really recognize that this is an area where as a cyclist, I'm more at danger and that you want the vehicles to recognize the areas where they're crossing with the cyclist. Um, and this this changes as you're going through the 
the system to still keep awareness and you know at forefront keeping safety there but making sure that everybody has a has a different level of recognition at the different levels of danger and um, visibility. So this, these are a few pictures of just the, these on-street bicycle crossings. Green page, you're also going to use at bike boxes. You'll use them at turn boxes. Um, you see the crossing here with the um, kind of the continental marked uh, green markings. Um, and then you have the bike lane on the right-hand side coming into the bike box. Um, these these are just areas that are not going to be your your standard typical places that you're just trying to create recognition of the change. The uh, turn boxes are places that you push back those pedestrian crossings from the intersection to allow that bicyclist to sit there. So they cross into the bike the bike turn box and they wait until the light turns the other direction they're able to turn. That keeps cyclists from having to, to merge across and make a left-hand turn through oncoming traffic, which is a, a fairly dangerous move and isn't a very um, friendly move for most of your cyclists. You're not comfortable in that type of environment. Your chevrons and the dash marks are shown on the other page, active guides. Uh, bicycle signage, uh, there's there's a lot of bicycle signage. You have your standard bike lane signage, your bike route signage. Those things are, are more of wayfinding signs. They'll let you know where, uh, where you're going, where the bicycle lanes are to bring awareness to the drivers. Uh, you need to be cautious of over signing things because people start, they they get uh, conditioned to those signs and they stop paying attention to them. They stop being aware of signs if you have too many types of signs all down the street. So you want to make sure the signage that you put out is in the right place and it's something that's visible and actually meaningful to the people that are driving down the road and the cyclists that are going down the road. So the share the road sign was a uh, was a fair, fairly um, common standard. Uh, that's been replaced in some places by may useful lane signs. Um, there's uh, debates going on across the nation as to which one is more appropriate. Uh, the may useful lane sign is uh, often the uh, bicycle um, advocates and like all the bicycle nonprofit groups that push for bike biking. Um, their their preference now. Uh, that sign gives the makes it aware to the driver that a bicycle can use any portion of that lane in the street. Uh, there was a lot of pushback on the share of the road signs originally because it was pushing the bicyclist to the right side of the road. And sometimes there are things on the right side of the road. There may be a pothole. There's an issue with the gutter pans or an issue with a inlet or something of that nature that the bicyclist needs to get around. And the cars do not believe that they're supposed to be anywhere other than that spot. And so uh, there's been some push back and forth as to which one they should use. If you're using a um, like a Shero and a shared street, the bike's useful lane is the pre preferred treatment now. Share the road signs are typically recommended for places where you have mixing like right turn lanes that are shared with a bike facility. Um, some something where the bike and the car is having to interact for a short period of time. 
Uh, it's a warning sign, so it's to bring awareness to the, that shift. Uh, and then in the state of Kansas, you have a state law that gives uh, to give three feet when passing bicycles. This is the approved sign by KDOT. Um, this sign is more of an educational tool. Um, having this, placing this in locations where you have new bike infrastructure going in to help make the people that are commonly going up and down that street aware that this is the law. Uh, placing this at entry gateways to your city um, to help people that are visiting understand that as they enter the city that they need to give three feet to bicyclists is the most appropriate way to use the sign. Uh, if Again, this gets into the, you may be over signing if you place these in too many places at once. Um, and just the, you know, the reading, the legibility of the signs is, um, you know, it's going to be for slower roads, uh, things that you're not going to see very often if you have these in uh, succession too, too often. Uh, we, we had, we kind of spoke about this last uh, presentation. So this is a, an additional tool to tie, that helps with the, the earlier conversation with that contextual guidance. And this is dealing with the signalized devices uh, for pedestrian crossings, but it also ties back into bicycle crossings. So when, whenever you have, um, you know, the shared use path crossings. So when to use a Hawk signal or an RFB, and this gives uh, the engineers very specific guidelines to kind of uh, reduce the flex, the, you know, the overall um, openness of that table. So you look at that table and you have an idea about what devices would be appropriate within that context. And then you can look at this and based off of that data, understand how to apply them in that location. So uh, for pedestrians and the signal devices, you're going to have shorter cycle lengths if you have high pedestrian volume. So uh, 60 second cycle lengths, trying to run through the cycles uh, a little bit faster. That allows the pedestrians, it makes them wait less time before they cross. Uh, your ped crossing times you look at based off of reduce the pedestrian crossing time, uh, reduce the speed of the pedestrians crossing. That way it increases the pedestrian crossing time. Um, dedicated PED signals. Um, we have some information in the guidelines about leading pedestrian intervals and left turn signal phasing. So left turns are um, also a very dangerous portion for how, how a pedestrian is crossing the street. Uh, signal devices for bicycles. Um, this really, this section is really dealing directly with uh, bicycle signals, talking about the on-site signals, how to develop the timing uh, for the signal. So you have to have additional green time because the cyclist isn't gonna cross the street as quickly as a, a vehicle. They're not gonna accelerate as quickly. Um, some information about how to uh, deal with actuation. There, there are new devices, uh, some types of cam some camera devices can pick up bicyclists pretty well. There's a puck device. There's different ways of doing your induction loops. So uh, we, we touch on a little bit of this uh, in this section of the guidelines. Um, we did spend a, a decent amount of time really looking at uh, how to deal with turning radii. 
Um, one of the most dangerous portions of the bicycle network and for pedestrians is uh, the speed vehicles may have to go around corners. So uh, right hook crashes are the most one of the most prevalent crashes that we have for between vehicles and bicycles. Um, selecting the proper design vehicle for your streets and so uh, going and determining what design vehicle is appropriate for your street based off the context of the road. What do you want that to function as? Um, this is a recommendations from NACDO for an urban city as to what, what uh, vehicle is appropriate for what type of street. Uh, you also have to adjust the the design to allow a control vehicle. Most places, this is going to be your fire trucks. Your fire truck has to be able to get to a residential house, but that fire truck's going to have sirens. It's going to be able to make a turn, uh, you know, weave into an oncoming lane. Uh, you can offset things to get it into that into that area. Managed vehicles are um, they're really the most common vehicle that's going to use that street. So it's going to be your standard passenger vehicle is usually your managed vehicle. And so you're going to assess each corner based off of these three types of vehicles, trying to um, make sure that the managed vehicles are not going to go much more than 10 miles per hour around the around the corner. And you're going to um, program those. Stephanie, here's your reminder from Stephanie. Take the garbage out. Sorry. Stephanie, here's your reminder so, from Stephanie. Take the garbage out. I think I'm supposed to take the garbage out. All right. So <laughs> the uh, 10 mile per hour vehicles, uh, the curl speed for the control vehicle. So those larger vehicles you're going to have at an even smaller speed, so like a two to five miles per hour. Uh, that way it allows them to uh, go around a tighter radii. Um, a lot of these have gotten even more uh, detailed in the design criteria as you're um, dealing with more um, more modern design techniques such as protected intersections. You're minimizing turns. So, um, some of the ways that we're going to look at this is your effective radii. So if you're offsetting the travel lane around a parking lane or a bike lane, um, you're able to, that, that turn radius is much larger. So if you can see in this picture, the radius at that corner is actually only 15, but that effective radius is 68 feet, which is massive. A passenger vehicle is going to be able to go around that curve at, at a very, very high speed. So you're going to want to do something at this location to try to reduce the ability for that passenger vehicle to turn around that corner, but still allow a, a larger control vehicle to actually make that turn. So there's things that you can um, you imply like multiple curb curve aprons. You can move the stop bars back. Um, moving the stop the the parking around can uh, give you some more space also for large vehicles. Um, this does have some other benefits. So uh, in some projects I've worked on, we were able to minimize the right of way that we needed at an intersection for a signal uh, because the curb uh, radii, tightening the curb radii, providing a little bit of a, an extension gave us enough space to put that there and it put the pole in place and still allow the button to be pressed and meet um, ADA compliance. Uh, slowing left-hand turns has become a, a larger conversation over the last several years. I think uh, New York City has now, they have installed somewhere around 600 of these um, 
throughout the city, New York City, uh, since 2016. And so you have, uh, this is typically just like a, almost like a speed hump uh, placed here. And um, then you have bollards or something of this of that nature that's a higher uh, back at the end. And that makes the driver turn, go all the way out in the intersection before they make a left-hand turn. Uh, drivers tend to, you know, cut the left uh, pretty severely and they're looking at the vehicles coming towards them and trying to find that gap and they're not paying attention to a pedestrian that may be in that crossing or a bicycle if a bicycle lane is also in that location. So this is uh, in Los Angeles and New York and um, Oakland, California, I know has put, put a bunch of these in. They're showing somewhere around uh, 45 to 50% reduction in uh, severe crashes and injuries for left-hand turns and pedestrians. Transit and railroad crossings. Uh, Lawrence has a pretty, uh, pretty good uh, transit manual already. Uh, usually your crossings are gonna want behind the, the transit vehicle when the transit vehicle stops that allows the cars behind it to see the see the person passing across um, same as principle as that stop bar being 20 to 50 feet back. Uh, rail crossings are a little bit more complicated because a lot of times your bicycle wheels can get caught between the tracks. So in this picture, you can see where the, the bed has been filled with concrete. There's also some metal mats and different uh, different techniques the railroads have to fill these spaces. They give you the ADA compliance and then this this rubber matting is something that reduces the gap so a bicycle tire is going to be less uh, less of a chance for it to be caught. Now this this infrastructure right here around the rails is all the responsibility of the railroad. So the city of Lawrence could look at when they're developing the bike lanes making sure that the bike facility itself you would make sure that you have markings to uh, show that you're going into a dangerous area, whether it's green markings um, or you know, sharrows or something, something to bring attention to this to make sure that the bicyclist is going to point their wheels as much to a 90 degree angle as they can to cross the tracks. And then working with the railroads to update their uh, crossings to uh, what is now standard in the MUTCD for their crossings. Prohibiting right turns on red. Um, these are, this is something that is great for areas with high pedestrians and bicycle volumes. Uh, if you have um, people crossing that are, um, you know, more at risk of so small children, intersections adjacent, adjacent to shared use paths or cycle tracks. So if you have a, a cycle track, a high volume cycle track, especially a two way cycle track on one side of the street, or a shared use path passing at an intersection, uh, you don't want right-hand turns also across those. Uh, for a person to make a right-hand turn, they're looking to their left down the street to find a gap to turn into, so they're not looking to their right, and them seeing traffic coming from both directions across that street, especially for bicycles that are gonna be traveling at a higher speed, it's very difficult for them to have enough time to react to that appropriately. Um, leading pedestrian intervals, uh, you don't want to write a, red, a right turn across a leading pedestrian interval, a pedestrian or bike only phase. 
Uh, if you have transit queue jumps, everything else should be stopped during the transit queue jump and site distance issues for queue vehicles approaching from the left. So if you're sitting they have a shot they're going to uh, be jumping at that they're going to be far more focused on the left than the right hand side uh, so there's a few benefits obviously uh, that are more on the safety side and then there are some challenges uh, some challenges are more perceived challenges uh, based off of uh, common driver behaviors and um, some of it's just that the the actual signal functionality if you only have so much space your signals you can get into a set cycle where the signal will fail because you don't have enough time in either direction for it to uh, accommodate the traffic. And then Idaho stops. Um, so our recommendation for an Idaho stop is to um, really uh, champion the state of Kansas passing a, a law, an ordinance to uh, accept a full Idaho stop in the state of Kansas. Lawrence passing a local law creates difficulties and um, the cyclist will have to know, like I'm riding down the street and once I pass this block, I'm no longer in the city of Lawrence. I am now outside of the city boundaries and that law is no longer applying to me. It's the same with the drivers. And even, I guess, more importantly, the people that are from outside of your community that are traveling through the community are also going to have to understand and recognize those boundaries. Um, and it's it's putting a lot of hope in um, people thinking about these things on a daily basis in a situation that you're, you're hoping that people are reacting properly and that enforcement's going to be able to be effective, but it's putting people at risk for safety. And if you're, you're pushing this for a statewide then everybody in the state is doing this everybody gets conditioned and understands how this should function and program and it's a it's a far more safe um activity than going with a local law right now there are only a few states that have a full idaho stop law most states have uh have a law that me that makes you have to guess as to whether the signal is operating or not um which you know any, anytime that you're you're guessing as to what's functioning right it makes problems and uh there are only a, a handful of cities um there's like three small cities in colorado um very few that have individual local laws or this is a state law and a state um And that pretty much all goes through the guide. Um, do we have questions? Okay. Thank you, Stephen. Let's uh, let's start with uh, you know technical and clarifying questions from the commission, and then once we've kind of satisfied our questions, then we can move on to public comment after that. Okay. So who wants to start us off? Do it, sure. All right. I don't have a whole lot. I just have a question about the rapid rectangular flashing beacons. It is not clear to me what the guidance that you're recommending is for the use of two-sided light bars 
versus a single-sided light bar. And I've seen both being used in our community. The Monterey Way has a single-sided light bar. And the newest one that I've seen is on Michigan Street, North Michigan, and it is uh, two-sided. What that means is cars um, see the a warning um, on both sides of the street, no matter which direction they approach the intersect or the crossing. And what I've read is the only time you should use a single-sided light bar is on a divided highway or a one-way street. Uh, otherwise, you should use a two-sided light bar. And I just wanted to know if if that's an appropriate um, way to do that, and if we could have that clarification inserted into the guide. Yes, sir. I'm I'm happy to speak with uh, with staff about that and uh, provide a recommendation directly regarding that. Thank you. You want to keep running down your list? That's all I've got. Okay. I'll jump in with one or two here to start with. I have a, I do have a decent amount of questions that, you know, ideally I would have gotten to staff on Friday, but sorry, didn't happen. So, um, all right. First one is something I should probably know by now. Is it Kansas law to have to yield to pedestrians in crosswalks? Yes. I, pedestrians. Well, I mean, obviously to not actually run them over. But for example, if a pedestrian is standing and waiting at the curb and there's a crosswalk, yes. is the driver compelled to stop? Because I've seen it happen maybe 1% of the time. Because I don't, I didn't know if it was law. Like in Maryland, where I'm from, it's pretty clearly signed like at half the of the non-intersection crossings. You see like, you know, state law stop for pedestrians. But if, if that's the case here, it sounds like that may need to be signed a little bit better. Yeah, so, Kansas law from, from what... I, I researched when we were developing this is is yield for pedestrians in the stop uh, in the in crosswalk. Okay. So yield, crosswalk, right? yeah, yield and stop. They they mean different things, and it's um, the general idea, the national idea that's pushing for stop for pedestrians in crosswalks is that stop is is more um, less subjective. Right. So if there's somebody there, you must stop. Whereas if you think that there is somebody there and you're yielding, it's well, I just it, it's a little bit easier to wiggle out of, I guess, um, is the. Is the, the typical response that you're going to get from um, people that are dealing with enforcement uh, claims regarding that. The, the idea of somebody standing on the uh, corner and whether they're going to step into the crosswalk or not, uh, typically you're going to have uh, someone in court that's stating, well, I didn't know that they were going to stand there. I saw them standing there for a while, and then I was driving through, and then they just jumped out in front of my car. And then you're at a having to prove, you know, that person that was hit by a car is having to prove that they they were stepping in their crosswalk before that person was crossing. And, you know, it, it gets very, very tricky um, to deal with those things in a, in a court of law. So if you have things that are, if you build your, your policy and your, your engineering design as clearly and clearly as you possibly can, um, you're, you're trying to, trying to whittle down the, the issues with claims and issues with, um 
the legalities that you're going to face in court with some of these things. Okay. So it sounds like, I guess, the specific question I had, which was pedestrians who are clearly intending to cross but aren't yet in the crosswalk, there's not necessarily a law saying that you have to stop and let anybody go who's about to cross the street, right? Well, if you're if it's a yield for pedestrians in the it's yield for pedestrians in cross like crossing crosswalks, then technically it's the pedestrians as they're leaving the the curb. Mm. But how are you proving that? So if somebody hits the person in the crosswalk or stepping into the crosswalk, it, it's it gets into a a legal uh, that that judge that day has to make the determination as to how he believes that that was that event happened. Okay. It's a it's a very difficult thing, and you know if somebody gets hit by a car, usually it's not not good for them in any way, shape, or form. I guess in that case, the takeaway from me is that for example, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the southbound crossing the Kansas Bridge turning westbound onto 6th Street. It does say yield. It's not clear to whom you are yielding. Cars will definitely yield to other cars. But I mean, I've waited there 15 cars in a row and nobody's yielding to somebody who is interested in crossing. So I, I was just kind of curious if there's a law that they're actually, you know, People should be stopping for folks about to cross. Sounds like not really necessarily. So not clear enough to want to sign things. So that's what I wanted to figure out. There, there is a law. It's just, you know, a law isn't going to protect you in that moment and that day. And it's, you know, a crosswalk isn't some magical barrier that's protecting everybody going across. I've, uh, I've seen this actually now in the U.S. a number of places, but years ago in Bolivia, they had people dressed up as zebras. And the zebras were teaching everybody how to cross the streets at the crosswalks and how to making sure all the cars were stopping. And so it was a big uh, educational campaign they had in Bolivia for pedestrian crossings. So they had a number of fatalities for pedestrians in the in the transportation environment. It'll be fun. Um, Commissioner Kuznets had a chance to look it up real quick while you're talking. Um, so the Kansas language is pretty consistent that pedestrian lawfully within the adjacent car or within the crosswalk yep but if you're on the waiting to cross yeah if you're in the curb tough look (laughs) okay and that's why we have our rfps so Uh, okay so next question i had was on table 3.1 which is the the recommendations of various intersection treatments for things crossing other things so it seems like you guys are recommending green paint for any crossing involving bikes or green paint or some kind of special marking so i just want to make sure i hear that right because that would be a departure from what we had previously seen um, in that green paint was only acceptable for truly dedicated bike paths and not shared use paths. So since shared use paths are bike infrastructure, even if they're also pedestrian infrastructure, are we going to start seeing green paint where shared use paths cross the roads? Well, the the shared use paths are really contained under the pedestrian crossing. So a, a shared use path is really a pedestrian designed as a pedestrian crossing. If you, the only places that typically use green paint for a shared use path for a crossing are places that are breaking a bicycle facility and pedestrian facilities apart as part of that shared use path. So you have some places where your volume of pedestrians and volume of bicycles are so high and you have bicyclists that are traveling at a high rate of speed. So you have to separate those two modes within the shared use path. So if we're 
if Lawrence is constructing shared use paths where they have dedicated bicycle sections and dedicated pedestrian sections, then at those locations, using a green markings would make sense. But if everything is just shared, the white, there, there, there's nothing more, more protective or more visible about a green marking than a white marking. So the white continental crosswalks are just as easy to see as the green. And honestly, they're better for some people with uh, color, uh, you know, color issues with their sight. Um, there's, you know, a number of um, a number of people with the FHWA and uh, some different uh, DOTs uh, don't care for the green paint at all because they think that there are issues with you know people that have trouble seeing green. Um, so. All right, so I'm trying to remember if I saw this in your else, but I swear I saw somewhere that, you know, green paint is recommended to increase the visibility of cycle crossings. If it can increase the visibility of bicycle crossings, wouldn't it be expected <laughs> to also increase the visibility of pedestrian crossings, given that it's the same paint crossing the same road? It seems like kind of an odd differentiation here. Well, the green paint is differentiating the bicycle crossings from the pedestrian crossings. So green paint was accepted uh, to, to give bicycle crossings themselves something that was going to be a higher visibility. But again, the green paint is not going to be any more visible than the white paint. So a continental crosswalk is just as visible as the green. And separating those two things out uh, for like a shared use path where everybody's sharing the space doesn't make a lot of sense. I think what's not making sense to me is that if green paint is no better than white paint, then why do green paint crossings for bikeways at all if it's not useful? And then on the other hand, I mean, bikes are just people and faster and harder to see. So I can see why you might want a little bit of differentiation. And, you know, if you have somebody walking with a baby in a stroller, you'd probably want them to be visible in a crosswalk too. So regardless of who it is, they're not in an armored car vehicle, right? So you'd yes. probably want them to have the same level of visibility and protection, even if 10% of the population can't see green, 90% can. So it seems, it seems like kind of a cop-out, frankly, to, to, to just kind of arbitrarily say, shared use paths are bikes and peds. We're going to treat them as peds because we feel like it, right? But they are also bike paths. And since we don't have real bike paths, those de facto are our bike paths. So I don't know. It, it seems like a not great conclusion based on, yeah, other cities are doing it, but there's also no law saying we can't put green markings at shared use paths. Oh, you could. I mean, it's it's it would be, but it, my thoughts on it are that if you're putting green paint down at a shared use path without needing to separate the bicycle and pedestrian traffic for whatever reason that you're needing to do that, you're just doing it for aesthetic reasons. It's not going to create anything that's going to give you any better visibility or any more protection. The, the green paint and the white paint are just as visible, but the white paint's honestly cheaper, um, typically. So uh, I guess, I mean, I just wanna ask again then, so why bother with green at all if they're just as visible? It sounds like the way you're it was, saying it is that there's no use for green at all. Well, there's use for green in that you have a on-street facility, so a cycle track, and you have a crosswalk. And so there's a cycle track is separate from a crosswalk, and that cycle track's going to have green paint. But you can't mark that with white paint also besides something else that has white paint because somebody, I, I had um, 
the the TDOT uh, ADA director uh, didn't like us using the continental style green markings because she was worried that somebody with colorblindness was going to use the bicycle crossing as opposed to the actual crosswalk and then they're going to get across the street and not have a ramp to enter back on the sidewalk. So you, you have to have very, you, you color code things in the way the FHWA has set everything up with MUTCD. So you have blue markings are all for, you know, handicapped. Uh, your green is for bicycle facilities, your white markings uh, for crossings are for pedestrians. Um, red is you typically you're going to be showing like fire. Uh, everything has a, a meaning based off the color and devoting it to a space. Uh, when uh, we were originally um, pushing for bicycle specific markings, uh, we were pushing for them to be red uh, because you can you can tint asphalt with red and that's what they do in the Netherlands is they actually mix the red pigment into the asphalt and they can just pave everything that way as opposed to having to coat it with paint on top. Um, but red was already taken and so FHWA would not allow that. So they assign green to bicycle facilities and that's why we have green paint for bicycle facilities. I guess I'm just um, still hung up on the fact that bikes are on the shared use paths by design, therefore they are bike facilities. I mean, training them as not bike facilities is weird, right? Like, yeah, I, I get they are different speeds of people crossing, but there aren't any other bike facilities. It's just a shared use pass and occasional on street lanes. So, like, if bikers are going to go on some place, it's going to be on the shared use paths. And I don't see where that would be a problem with confusion because they are the sidewalks as well. So it's not like somebody's going to be like, oh, man, which sidewalk do I have to go on? Like, the one you're on, it's green, it's white, it doesn't matter, right? So well, I, I, I agree with every, everything you're saying. It's just it's it's more of a what do you want to do and why do you want to do it i mean like if it's green or if it's white those crossings it's it really doesn't impact one more than the other my recommendation would be to use white paint because it's typically cheaper um you can get the white thermoplastic and get all the markings you're not going to have any type of site issues you're your contrast value when you're getting into low light is going to be higher for whites than green. Um, it's it's just typically a better solution. But okay, if so you want to do everything as green, then you could do everything as green. It's not going to really impact things one way or the other. So say you had what they often have in the Netherlands, which is a separated bike lane and a separated walking path that are both off the street. Mm -hmm. That bike lane does continue to be a different color as it goes through, even though it isn't on the street. It is separated. That's yeah. kind of the same thing as what's going on with the shared use pass. They are bike lanes and they're off the street. So even though they don't fit the FHWA definition of being an on-street bike facility, they're still crossing the street. I, yeah, I don't know. If, if nobody else cares, we can move on. I just <laughs> feel like this is kind of a, a silly distinction and it feels like a cop-out to providing at least a modicum of safety in crossing the street. The, well, the, the, the Netherlands, your bike facilities are separate um, the entire way. So you have the red facilities that are separate and from the pedestrian and then they cross and they're separate. They always stay separate. And so that gets back into if you have shared use paths that you're designating a separate section for bikes and a separate section for pedestrians then marking them separately makes sense. But when they're just all combined together, where where are you determining what is green and what is white um and just for for what purpose i mean is it really giving you additional 
safety benefits? Is it bringing awareness to the drivers and to the people crossing the street that this is this is happening? I would argue on 23rd Street that turns into Clinton Parkway since the sidewalk is a shared use path and that's a very often used bike path and a lot of curb cuts and intersections that that would be a pretty good example of where having some differentiation would help. Um, there are fairly regularly accidents and pedestrian bike hits out there. So here's my concern about this is we don't have a term to help us distinguish a shared use path from a path that has a designated bike lane and a pedestrian lane. And if you took a 10 foot path and cut it in half and said, this five feet are for people that ride bikes, I have a really difficult time imagining people on bikes staying inside that five foot section as they, as they drive or ride by each other. I think they would go into the pedestrian lane. So I'm curious if in the Netherlands, they have a term to distinguish this or do they literally don't have shared use paths? They don't really have shared use paths. Now in their bike facilities, people ride motorized scooters um, and everything there, it's a cultural thing. Um, so if you're riding a bicycle and you're on red, anywhere that has red has the right of way. So every, every, the color of the ground is telling you what the right of way, who has the right of way and everybody else yields. And there, everybody has learned from birth that this is how everything operates, and they just naturally do it. Um, there, there's not a lot of jockeying feet? for position. Is that a five-foot path, or is it wider? The uh, bike lanes are typically wider in the Netherlands. I um, imagine that. So yeah, yeah. Like we don't really have an equivalent here. Yeah, it's hard to imagine I, because I think where the green paint is the most useful is where, yeah, you have an on-street facility. It's a dense place there's a lot of people hanging out walking around the green's helpful so that people aren't congregating in the bike lane you mm-hmm. you know when you see the you know you see the paint you're like oh i gotta get out of the way i'm in like moving bike traffic yeah i feel, I feel like i understand this it, if it's a dedicated bike path the green marking tells me to be clear of that as right. a pedestrian yeah. exactly yep. and so it becomes un, unclear if my pedestrian path is also marked with green. Then I'm not sure that green is telling me anything as a pedestrian. The way that we're talking about green pavement markings is at intersections. It's where it crosses the road. It's 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 for motorists, pr- presumably, to be more aware that there are people crossing the road and I guess they're on a bike. So it's not the but whole path. Kind of going back to the idea that there's a particular user who people are going to yield to, it, it confuses me as if it's all green and I'm not sure what the green means other than just people wanted to use green. So are you advocating for no green markings anywhere then? No, I think that the, as I understand the guidance, it's that it's appropriate to use green when it is a facility just for people on bikes. If it's shared or pedestrian, then it's white. If, if, I may, it's, if it's dedicated to bike only, then it's green. If I, that's what I'm hearing, yeah. If I may chime in, Stephen, can we get the image of the the green path on the screen again, just so we can... Yes, sir. That's what I was working on. <laughs> Let me see. All right. Can you, can you all see this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
All right. So um, you see here that the green is differentiating from the pedestrian crossings. So these bike facilities, and so this is this is a buffered bike lane. If you put in uh, you know armadillos or bollards or you know planters, then this becomes a protected bike facility. Um, or if you have a concrete curb, then you're you're dealing with this as a cycle track. So anything that's an on-street facility, regardless of whether it's just a standard bike lane or any of the other types of bike facilities that would be crossing, you'd have green the green markings going across, showing where the showing the bicyclists where they're going to cross. So sometimes you have uh, intersections that are offset. So the bicycle crossing may actually uh, be a little diagonal to get across, and this helps the bicyclists know where they should be in the lane as they're crossing through the intersection. And it also brings awareness to the drivers that this is where a bicyclist will be as I'm crossing the, this green path. The white markings are all for the pedestrian crossings and gives them it shows them where they should be crossing, where's the most safe place. It also shows the vehicles and the bicyclists where they're going to have interactions with pedestrians. So I guess um, a question that maybe staff or somebody else in the commission can answer for me is, what's an example here in Lawrence where something's comparable of you know that uh, image like we were where we would see this yeah. uh, the green paint use 14th of mass yeah one of them there's others correct but that's like the main one yeah i don't even know if it's updated on google maps yet on the bike boulevard or on the bike boulevard there's some oh are there okay paint. there's this green paint okay so i think for me i'm realizing really this whole discussion is like making me think this is just a great case to go away from shared use paths mm -hmm. and put in more protected cycle tracks because then we do have designated space for both and you know yep. a clean designation to use green pavement markings which i think also adds wayfinding um people finding where to ride the bike much easier than you know shared use path we've bottlenecked ourselves into Oh, do we we can't use green because it's technically sidewalk? Yeah. No, I'm good for now. Yeah. This is what well, it is. I, I appreciate the um distinction that I just heard about a bicycle track uh between that and a protected bicycle lane. Because I don't know that we've had a really clear distinction. And what I heard is I'd like to maybe ask, ask that there be um, some better definition provided in our guidance document. Because what I heard was bicycle track has a raise, has a curb. And what we've heard in the past is these are kind of interchangeable. We see, you know, it's kind of like protected bike lane slash cycle track. But I'm hearing you say that th those are distinct and in the guidance here it says allowable bike type bicycle types or bikeway types they're separate bullets i'd like to see that be defined because if a bicycle track is literally having a curb that runs you know alongside that track 
that feels protected and it feels maybe distinct from bollards or was it armadillos you said yes sir yeah armadillos are just little little rubber um they look like tiny uh, speed bumps <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know if there's a difference like in the literature that says a, a bicycle track is creates a, a perception of safety that's higher than a armadillo but my instinct is yeah if there's a curb there it's probably going to feel protect more protected than when you're calling it a protected bike lane and actually it's just some things sticking out of the ground but a car could fairly easily drive right over it it'd be pretty noticeable if a vehicle drove over a curb i think um, depends on the curb i suppose yeah but i'd be then kind of curious like okay does our bicycle facility matrix need to get more clear about an unprotected track. cycle track versus physically protected? Yeah. Uh, like well, I mean, the terms here are protected bike lanes, bicycle track. Gotcha. Buffered bike lanes is also in there, but that's not for a major collector, a major arterial. So a bicycle track is appropriate on a major collector street up to 35 miles an hour a minor arterial up to 45 miles an hour and a principal arterial up to 45 miles per hour. So that would mean on Wakarusa, it's appropriate to have a bicycle track. And going back to like discussion we've already had, it's too late now probably, but we are moving toward a shared use path on the part of Wakarusa that's gonna be rebuilt. And I was always concerned about that. And now it feels like we should have been advocating for is a protected, I'm sorry, probably a bicycle track. I think there was an issue of right away at the time. There's also a cost factor, I yeah, think. There's also enough room, but, I think. Cycle tracks are, um, they're definitely the, the highest form of the bicycle infrastructure. Um, there's very few places that actually have full, fully constructed cycle tracks and uh, some places have two-way cycle tracks or elevated cycle tracks. Um, you know, the Indianapolis Cultural Trail is one. Uh, theirs really is a, a shared facility with pedestrians, and they have uh, dividers in between the pedestrian walkway and the, the bicycle facility. Um, it, they cost a lot more money. So they should be in places that you're identifying as going to be your high-volume area. Um, that you really, you're going to have a lot of bicycle traffic through that area. It's going to, um, it's going to be kind of a showpiece to tie in and be like a backbone to your network. Um, the cost is um, really impacted a lot by your stormwater. And so you're going to have to get that stormwater at, into, you have to move all your stormwater infrastructure. You have to develop green stormwater infrastructure to tie in to the existing systems. Um, they're, they're, they're a chore, um, and they take a lot of space. And that's generally your, your biggest thing is understanding the space that the different facilities need. So what do you want this facility, you know, this street functions as this, you want it to be this level of comfort, you have this much space. And so how do we address this space really starting at your intersection and not the, the midpoint because your intersections control everything in an urban setting. So understand how you have to develop that intersection and then 
make all your decisions based off of that going out and understand what what the real cost is going to be for you to implant you know to implement that that type of facility in that place okay do we have any further discussion on this point or shall we move on to the next couple questions because i know we got kind of deeper into that i'd take responsibility but um yeah i'm okay with moving off of that one I did have a question about the three foot passing distance sign. Is that a KDOT standard? Are we allowed to deviate from that or do we have to have that rather wordy sign? That's the KDOT standard. Um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's, it's very hard to read that. Um, yeah. I, it, you know, you're usually going to be placing that on streets that should have lower speeds. Um, so the, if the cars are traveling at, you know, 20, 25 miles per hour in a little more an urbanized environment, then they should be able to read that. And again, you're not going to want them everywhere. Uh, it's a, it's an educational thing more than, than anything. And it also helps you with, uh, with your enforcement. If you have some signs out there and the police officer needs to, uh, ticket somebody for not, uh, accommodating a cyclist appropriately on the road, then having signage out there helps them uh, with the enforcement actions and actually uphold them properly. Mm -hmm. So just so I make sure I'm hearing you correctly, you say it's the standard. Does that mean that there is no possibility to, devi to deviate from the standards or it's more like this is what we highly recommend you to do? It's, I'll need to speak with staff more on that. I don't, I don't know what KDOT's flexibility is with that. That's their sign that they have adopted and they've accepted. It's a state law. So I would imagine they're going to be pretty stringent on like, we want you to use this sign. Uh, there are a, at least five other versions of that sign that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. Um, sounds good. Sorry, there was another one I had on Section 4.1.2. Uh, pedestrian countdown timers and audible beacons should be used at all intersections to support crossing compliance and for the visually impaired. At all intersections means that we are very, very short at that. If we only have it at six in Massachusetts, as far as I know. Um, do you know other, other cities that have gone as far as putting audible? Um, well, it's it's part of uh, it's part of ProAg and part of ADAG that you have these devices. Uh, so cities enter into ADA transition plans mm -hmm. to then have a uh, budgeted amount to then transition the city through. So uh, the city of Memphis, uh, we have thirteen hundred signals uh, throughout that the city is responsible for and. Um, you know, I, I think about 20, oh, 30, 33 of them get updated every year. So it's going to take quite some time before they actually get all of them updated. Um, you know, sometimes it's not as easy as putting up a, a signal. So a lot of times uh, people just think that you can run out there and you can put up head countdown timers in these devices. But the controller cabinet itself may not be sophisticated enough to control all those devices. So you have to go out there and completely replace the controller device to be able to control all the extra signal systems. Right. So it can get fairly expensive really fast. Okay. That's good to know that kind of everybody's in that, or at least a lot of cities are in that process of transition. So it's good to know. Um, all right. For section 4.1.3 on pedestrian actuation. So 
I've noticed that at a lot of intersections in town, if you don't press any button whatsoever, you're never going to get an actual white crossing signal. Is that because the normal light cycle is not the minimum four to second, four to seven second walk time? And is that what the button is for? Like it actually extends what would otherwise be your crossing time? So the, the button uh, will shift the, the signal into a pedestrian crossing phase. And so what that means is that you'll have a four to seven second uh, you know, walk symbol. And then the, the actual countdown timer is the time that's added for the pedestrian crossing. So depending on how wide that is, uh, every three and a half feet is a second. Uh, added into the time. And that signal would probably be uh, not as efficient if it was constantly in pedestrian recall because you'd have four to seven seconds plus the time to cross. Then you end up with a three second uh, red stop hand up uh, before it can start changing to the yellow light. Your yellow light's going to be uh, based off of the speed of the road somewhere between four and a half to six and a half seconds. And then, uh, then you'll usually have an all red before it turns red. Uh, so you have a lot of, of dead time in that crossing. And that can typically, if you don't have a lot of pedestrians crossing in those locations, it controls everything else and makes the, the vehicle system not work at all. Okay. It sounds like I know where our priorities lie then in terms of who it's going to be convenient for to get across intersections then. But at least now I understand why we don't have an automatic walk signal. I swear there's other cities I've lived in where everywhere you go, it's either a red light or it's a green light and you have a pedestrian signal. So this is kind of new to me here, not having. Um, you said you're from Massachusetts? No, I'm from the DC area and I lived in Philly and Austin as well. And they generally have walk signals that just kind of happen. You don't have to press a button or anything. And if you do, it's probably not going to do much. Um, Shorter blocks, so in your, your street distances, it. yeah, your street crossings, like I know I've worked with Austin a lot, your street crossings have been reduced because you have curb extensions, so that reduces the amount of time it takes the pedestrian to get across, so it reduces that pedestrian crossing time. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you can get into um, not having the pedestrian actuation on, and you have more people, more pedestrians crossing, and so that that's... Typically in, in cities, um, as you increase your, your density of pedestrians and you increase your density of, of you know, commercial development and things of that nature over a smaller area, then you don't need to actuate the signals in that way any longer. You can have an open pedestrian cycle going. Okay, that makes sense. Um, does anybody want to jump in with other questions that have come up or? Yeah, I've got okay. a comment that I'd like to make. Yeah. My interest at the very beginning of this process in terms of developing the design guidance had to, had to do with the shared use path at the signalized intersection and just the you know the danger of that primarily from turning vehicles through the through the um, through the crosswalk and um, i mean you've made a couple of statements in here about you know situational uses for prohibiting right turn on red and then also the turning Radii of radii of the um, of the intersection. So, but it seems like it's is it is it written as a as a policy or a design guide or I mean it looks like the kind of suggestions you know like pros and cons of prohibiting right turn on red but not really make making a recommendation about about that. What kind of well, explain that about? I this? think we can get to. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think we can have stronger recommendations after, you know, getting back the public comments from this meeting and then a meeting with staff about how they want to enact a specific policy for the city. Um, but being a consultant, like we can't really write a specific policy for you and that's going to be a regulation that has to be passed by the city. Um, so I, I would say that a um, like developing language about how we would adapt right turn on red throughout the city and then having that adopted as an ordinance um, would be the, the way to go. Um, it, we just have to work out the language as to how the city really wants that to be worded. Great, thank you. Okay, I'll jump in again, I guess. Um, so I was in. And based on the, the cartoon, I'm wondering as a motorist, does that make it hard for two oncoming cars to simultaneously make a left turn because they're both further than halfway into the intersection? It can. You you have to, I mean, that's something that the um, designers will have to do uh, the turn analysis to understand where those things can be placed, how far out it can be placed. Um, in some cases, you may move the crosswalk a little bit further away from the intersection, so move that a little bit further back. That way you can harden the edge and still allow enough, uh, you know, turning uh, radii for both of those left turning vehicles. Okay, so it's basically not really a concern. There are definitely ways around it, right? There are, yeah, everything, it's it's very hard to have a very specific guideline. In each case, we're gonna have to go out there and analyze it and, and adjust a little bit, but you know, crosswalks mm -hmm. can be moved a little bit. Every, everything has, has the ability to shift around. Okay, I had a question about parking modifications. Um, in other cities, they, there has been moves to have parallel parking about six feet off of the curb, such that the bike lane is now protected from travel lanes by, you know, two tons of, st of steel in that direction, and also preventing dooring by a significant margin. Um, would it be possible to include some kind of language around that in the policy, just to kind of show that there is another way? Um, yes. So, you know, in the, the appendix, there is the parking modification guidelines, which was really just kind of addressing how you're going to look at parking on the street and, and change to give you more space for bike facilities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, dealing a little bit with the reverse angle parking because having, you know, straight in angle parking for any type of bike facility that's going behind that, uh, sharrows or anything is exceptionally dangerous. So shifting that to uh, reverse angle. Uh, the uh, bike, the parking protected bike lanes, the floating parking is, um, it's something I've used quite a bit. I, I like it a lot, um, but it, it has specific places that are better than others. If you have a lot of driveways, it's not always the best because that car is then um, creating a barrier, a sight barrier for the cyclist. So if the bicycle is going down that, that bicycle lane and you have a car that's in between the travel lane, now anybody that's turning into that driveway might not be able to see the cyclist. So you have to design that properly at each one of those those crossings for the cyclist to be visible for for any of the cars turning into those driveways. So like on a standard residential street or something like that, you're not going to necessarily want 
um, want that even if you have like a collector that has a lot of residences because just that many breaks makes it very difficult for that function right um, you do have other issues with that because you are now constraining the bicycle between a vehicle and the curb so if they get caught if there's a, a pothole or there's an issue with a with the uh, stormwater inlets or you know, there, there's an obstruction of some sort, it's harder for them to now maneuver out of that space. And you do have issues with dooring with pedestrians where a pedestrian gets out and now the bicycle has nowhere to go around that door because they're gonna hit the curb. Mm -hmm. So there, there are challenges, but it is something I think that works really well. It just has to be applied in the right spot and you know, everything has to be designed properly about how you're integrating it into the system. Okay, sounds good. In that case, I guess I would I would just like to put it on the record that I think it'd be helpful to have that option at least laid out a little bit because I think a lot of people haven't even heard of it if they're not familiar with larger cities. So, um, all right, one more thing, raised crosswalks. Um, is there any standard regulation that prevents their being used more frequently? And is there an opportunity to maybe get some more defined geometrical standards to make sure that they are, I guess, appropriately sloped on the approach and the dismount? Okay, um, so are you looking at raised crosswalks at intersections or raised crosswalks at mid-block crossings only? I guess either. Um, either. I mean, we have them at both, as far as I know. We have a couple of mid-block crossings on the Burroughs Creek Trail over on the east side, and we have a couple at, in, there's a relatively new, new one at an intersection over on Haskell and 19th, so. Yeah, I don't so think it's, it's, yeah. the city of New York about four years ago started doing uh, a massive program where they're putting them in at a number of intersections uh, all through the city, putting in raised crosswalks. Um, that, that's become a, a more popular thing uh, lately. Uh, your your biggest issue with raised crosswalks at intersections are stormwater. Uh, you have to figure out a way to get stormwater around and into the inlets um, around these now obstructions because the, the street, the Mm -hmm. gutter you know the the curb is really there for stormwater control it's not there for any other reason so um getting getting the water in the right place is typically your biggest challenge the angles your entry and your exit angles should have a specific slope and typically the biggest issue with that is the uh the grade of the street that you're placing that on you have to change the the length of that ramp based off of the the grade of the road can keep your slope appropriate for the vehicle to cross over that uh, you're usually going to have a device that's about 22 feet wide and um, you need enough space for that and um, it's your vehicles are going to typically go somewhere between 20 and 25 miles per hour over the raised crosswalks is uh, if they're you know, not needing to stop or turn for some reason. Hmm. Okay. I guess all I ask is that if it's if it's possible to include a little blurb on like, here's a potential treatment that we could have for an intersection that's new that people maybe aren't familiar with. Um, it does seem like there's a difference in, even in Lawrence, that there are some, some race crosswalks that have to be crossed pretty slowly or they're going to ruin your undercarriage. And then there's others that you don't even really fail them. So um, I just think it'd be interesting. It, it would be of use to kind of have a more defined tool in our toolbox for when we talk about crossings of shared use paths, for example. Because, okay. I mean, I mean, I would definitely favor race crosswalk over green paint, for example. Um, okay. Yeah, and then, 
Yeah. It's far more effectual. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I promise this is the, the final one. In other countries, there are progressive zigzags, both in the side and on the center lane when you're approaching either a race crosswalk or zebra crossing. Are those allowed via MUTCD or is that totally prohibited in the U.S.? Because I don't think I've ever seen it here. I don't think it's prohibited. Um, they used some in Oakland uh, about two years ago. Uh, there's a couple of studies that are going on. I'll have to, to look it up. Um, I haven't seen it recently. So the, the purpose of that is, is it's a trick of optics. And so they started using it uh, over in, in England, I believe was the first place, and then Germany. Um, and it's you if you have everything on the road is at equal distances, then it becomes a tunnel and you, you speed up all the time. So what you're doing is you're trying to uh, reduce the, um, the image and make it closer together. That way you automatically feel like you're going a little faster. Uh, there's a trick uh, that uh, we've used uh, to plant trees and you plant the trees getting gradually closer together during certain sections because it's going to make the person feel like they're driving faster and they automatically slow down going down the street before they get to the crosswalk. Mm -hmm. um, so that there, there's a number of different tricks similar to that. There's a, a group that was looking at changing the lengths of the, the standard pavement markings. So you're, you're just dash markings down the street as opposed to them staying at a uniform length that they gradually get a little bit smaller as they get closer to a crosswalk and that <laughs> seems to slow people down. There's a, a test bed up in Michigan that's looking at that right now. Do you think that would be something that could be possible to include in the policy is something that if say a race crosswalk isn't going to be appropriate, um, you know, to, to slow people maybe from mid block crossings, for example, places where you wouldn't otherwise expect a crosswalk to be, um, I don't know if that's how they're commonly used or not. Yeah, it would be more of an artistic um, paint method. So I don't know what like KDOT's um, policies are on that. Um, but there, there are a number of cities that are using artistic installations. And you can use artistic installations with varying geometric patterns to create that same effect. Hmm. Um, you can have something about your plantings. But uh, that's something I, I can talk with the staff and, you know, just what they're what they're open to, but you know, once you get into landscaping, it gets gets a little bit out of engineers' hands. Typically, you don't want to yeah. be picking out trees and flowers. So, um, but there, there's there's certain techniques that you can use that you can you can kind of trick people to to behave. Mm -hmm. Okay, I would ask that if if possible, maybe a blurb about that, just as like you know, significantly cheaper and less stormwater problematic way to slope. People at intersections. I think that could be helpful. Okay, I am actually done. Does anybody else have any other questions before we go on to public comment? I do apologize for monopolizing everybody's time. Usually I would try to get this done by Thursday or Friday and actually send them to you guys beforehand, but uh, Stephen, thank you very much for bearing with me. I think I understand this a lot more, and I do think this is an extremely important document and policy because almost all of our pedestrian and bike fatalities are at intersections. So like, it's kind of a matter of life and death really. So if we can improve these, then we can hopefully reduce the fatalities, major industries, in injuries. I'm apologies here. All right. I have one thing just occurred to me. I thought about this. I don't know if this would be a place to put it, but on certain uh, 
intersections. Typically, it seems like it's like in the country. There's a rumble strip that kind of is in advance of a stop sign, maybe to bring people's attention to the stop sign. And I've often wondered why those are not used, you know, as people approach significant pedestrian crossings. Is there, can you give us some input on that? Like when we're trying to protect people that are crossing our Lawrence Loop Trail, for example, you know, we've talked about green paint. Well, maybe that's out now. We've talked about raised crossings. Is there any value to putting rumble strips before uh, those crossings? There are a couple of different methods of doing it where they, they where they score the pavement or they, they place something that's, you know, slightly sticks up off the top of it. Um, Germany actually has a street that plays music for you. It's really nice. But the, um, the big thing is noise complaints, usually. Um, that that creates a lot of noise. And so you have to understand how far out the, the sound is going to go from that location as they're crossing and understand who it's going to impact um, prior, to, prior to you installing something of that nature. So if you have you know, people's personal homes that are close to that, you would want to uh, do a study, understand the, the the decibel impact that's gonna go out of that if they're gonna hear that while they're watching TV in their living room, and then have some type of public discourse to make sure that they were okay with with you changing their life in, in that manner prior does, to just doing it. <laughs> how does one go about studying that? Like, is there temporary strips you put down or something? Yeah, there's research out there about um, about how much what the decibel level would be, and then you have like it's going to create this much sound over this much distance. Uh, we do the same thing for interstates. So like you you do an interstate noise study, understand where you need to put noise walls and things of that nature. Um, and so you you can create a, an area of effect, and then you're just looking at owner ownership and you know who who you may be impacting by doing that. Does it cause any trouble for other users, like uh, someone that's riding a bike down the street? Bicycles typically don't like to go over rumble strips. Uh, the, those, like, so these would not be, they would be spaced a little bit differently. They're not, they're not typically as close together. And usually a bicyclist has an issue with like standard, like highway rumble strips because they're going across them left and right. They're not just going straight across them. In this case, you should be going 90 degrees right across the, the strips, so it shouldn't be as big of a deal. Uh, not all riders are going to feel super comfortable with it. Uh, if you're going really fast and you're on like a, a fancy road bike with little tires, it's going to jostle your, your handlebars quite a bit. Um, so it, it can impact things. Um, I know some uh, motorcycle groups have uh, have come out against things of that nature in the past, but I I don't know how impactful it really is to somebody on a motorcycle. Thank you. Anybody else? All right, let's turn it over to public comments. Is there anybody in the room who has comment on this agenda item? I'll ask that you please state your name and address and you're, who you are representing in case it's not yourself.
Hello, good evening. I'm Michael Allman, uh, speaking for Sustainability Action Network. At the City Commission on 17 May 2022, David Cronin admitted that shared use paths are indeed bikeways. He said it outright. As such, he contradicted himself from when on January 3rd, 2022, his position at the Multimodal Transportation Commission was that SUPs are not bikeways, but rather are pedestrian facilities, as we've heard several times tonight, and don't warrant having green pavement at the intersections. Vice Mayor Lisa Larson on 17 May City Commission then asked Mr. Cronin, if SUPs are bikeways, will he use green pavement there? He said, no, it will be white. And then he played his trump card and he said, they're not dedicated bikeways. So my question to Mr. Cronin is, where are Lawrence's dedicated bikeways? The buffered bike, bicycle lanes, the protected bicycle lanes, the single direction uh, cycle tracks, the two-way cycle tracks, where are they? We don't have any. SUPs are our default bikeway. Now, don't begin to think that white stripe bicycle lanes are dedicated bikeways either. Um, they are routinely taken over by park delivery trucks, park city utility trucks, cable company trucks, rows of school buses, and yes, those inattentive drivers that drift into across that, that six inch white line. Uh, and this applies to police cars too. I've seen them, but I digress. The absurdity of the green pavement logic aside, the point I'm making here is that Lawrence has no functional, safe, convenient, dedicated bikeways, nor any semblance of a policy uh, to determine that. The astonishing thing is that the outgrowth of this two and a half year odd odds discussion is a $28,000 consultant report with no attempt at a protected bikeways policy. I give that a grade of fail. Back to the drawing board is what I say, but don't count on Mr. Cronin to initiate it. He already squandered his opportunity. It's down to you to recommend to the city commission that Trek create a protected bicycle lanes, uh, a protected bikeway policy. That's more important than green pavement or Idaho stops or bicycle parking or anything. If we, if our bikeways are not safe for all ages and abilities, nothing else really matters. Sustainability Action has proposed an effective draft policy on types of protected bike, bikeways. When you talked about it, thank you. According to street classification and speed limit. That's just one example. Trek can build on that if desired or they can develop their own criteria. Our point is just do it. Michael, that, that, that should be included in the scope of work. So thank you very much. Great discussion tonight. Thank you. Hi, my name is um, Ben Steele and uh, I live at uh, 943 Avalon Road in Lawrence. Um, I just like to comment on the bike policy portion of the report, like Michael did here. Um, 
I'm what you call a uh, recreational cyclist. Uh, I, I bike around town quite a bit, and I, I see two main things. Number one, um, Lawrence is small and compact enough where people can ride their bikes downtown or um, if they wanted to, they could they could even commute to their to their workplaces. Uh, and number two, most people in Lawrence, uh, they don't do that because they don't feel safe uh, riding a bicycle on our streets. Um, you know, and a good indicator of that is families. Um, <clears throat> notice that you rarely see families riding their bikes on our streets in Lawrence. And I can tell you, I can understand why. Uh, I live on Avalon Road, and uh, and when I go downtown on my bike, uh, I take 9th Street, um, which actually has some worn out uh, white striping uh, in a few places. But but even so, when the traffic is heavy, I often have to hop onto a, a sidewalk for my own safety. Uh, and that, you know, that's pretty much... Uh, everywhere. That's pretty much the case everywhere I ride in Lawrence. So, you know, when I read this policy, what really stood out for me is that it really doesn't mention anything about uh, protected uh, bike lanes. Um, and I was really surprised to see that. Uh, a lot of cities have adopted protected bike lanes. Des Moines, Iowa has them. I know uh, Lincoln, Nebraska uh, has them. A lot of uh, college towns like ours uh, have them. So if they can't do that, uh, can't do that, uh, you know, why can't if they can do that, why can't we? Um, and I can tell you from my own experience that having uh, these these physical barriers is really a game changer for cyclists. Uh, and it, it, it's not just safer for cyclists; it's safer for motorists as well. It, uh, having these physical barriers really has a calming effect on the traffic. It slows things down. It just makes it safer for everybody. Uh, so I urge the committee to revise this policy to include protected bike lanes, uh, improving the safety of, you know, <clears throat> bicycle crossings alone. It, that's great, but it's not enough. Um, putting down more white uh, striping and sharrows and, and all that kind of stuff on roads is, in my opinion, uh, as a cyclist and as a stakeholder in this policy, it's not adequate. It's not adequate for safety. Um, I think we can do better than that. Um, and specifically, I recommend that the, uh, the city install protected bike lanes along Massachusetts Street from 14th to 23rd Street, sort of as a, uh, as a prototype uh, for a broader implementation. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I think if it's successful, then it could be expanded uh, as appropriate on ma major roadways and be sort of kind of like a uh, default design policy, especially, you know, when we're repaving roads, at the very least, when we're re repaving roads, I think that should be done. Um, that's a uh, so three minutes. All right. You got, I, I think I've made my point. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any other public comments online? Yes, there are two actually. Chris Titan was next. Okay. Chris, please unmute yourself. And we still are unable to hear you. I I can't actually hear. Are you asking for are you asking for public comment from online at this point? Yep. Yes. Okay. Um I think there's a couple of us that you are, yes, sir. Okay, awesome. 
Well, thank you very much um, for the opportunity to, to speak to this issue. My name is Chris Tilden. I live at 1121 Williamsburg Court on the west side of town. I guess my, my comments are to some degree in the form of a question, and that is around the mechanism for adoption of these guidelines. And I guess that stems from my, uh, I guess, some lack of uncertainty about the scope of work. Um, the, the, the agenda item says draft policy for comment. Um, and so I'm not, you know, when I see these guidelines, I think there's a lot of great ideas. And I, you know, in some places see really good specification or specificity that I think is really helpful. Like looking at the on-street pavement markings, you know, table 3.1, uh, real clear, like the recommendation is do this here, don't do this there. Um, on the other hand, there's also been treatments like bike boxes or the median extensions for the uh, left-hand turns. Um, and I see those ideas presented. What I don't see is recommendations as to where should we be utilizing these in the city and and what are the you know what are the standards associated with that so i think that goes into you know what what is the mechanism for adoption of these guidelines so that they become specific uh, community policy um, i would change hats for a moment uh, as a, a member of livewell douglas county to say that we did submit uh, a letter uh, of public comment, not specifically for this evening, but in much earlier uh, discussions about um, our concern about bike lanes that are not separated and protected and certainly would like to see something integrated into a design policy that would address the, the question that's been brought up uh, by earlier speakers as well. Um, just a couple other comments that I think are, are more tangential. Uh, the zigzag paint uh, issue that, uh, that um, was brought up earlier. Um, I have, uh, so I, I think the question was, is, has that been applied in anywhere in the United States? Uh, I can say in Kona, Hawaii, uh, they use those a lot in beach areas where there's a lot of pedestrian traffic and people that park on the street you know, then they're crossing over to a beach. And I've seen those used and they seem to be extraordinarily uh, effective in slowing traffic in those areas. Uh, That's uh, three minutes. Okay, thank you for the opportunity. And you're on mute anyway, it looks like. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's not really a choice. Thank you, Chris. Hello. Hi. Yeah, um, you all went mute for me. Is it my turn to speak now? Okay. Hi. Uh, good evening, commissioners. My name is Hillary Carter. I live at 2119 Virginia Street in the Centennial neighborhood in Lawrence. Truck Design Group's Bicycle and Pedestrian Design Policy and Guidelines Report prepared for the City of Lawrence addresses two street design elements, safer crossing designs for pedestrians and cyclists and motor vehicle parking design. Trek's report states that this bicycle and pedestrian design policy and guidelines document will build on the existing City of Lawrence pedestrian and bike plans and city design standards. 
the 2019 Lawrence Bike Plan grants equal levels of comfort to shared use paths and protected bike lanes labeled as major separation facilities. Shared use paths put cyclists outside the sight lines of drivers. I bike my daughter to preschool every day westbound on the Clinton Parkway shared use path and the intersections are nightmares because of right turns on red and left hand turns into the intersections where I have the right of way crossing. Each and every time I would choose road diets and on-street protected bike infrastructure over shared use paths. I am more visible to drivers when I share the street with them and when road design slows down vehicles. Shared use paths and protected bike lanes are not analogous levels of comfort for cyclists. At a minimum at all intersections where shared use paths and protected bike lanes are installed, right turns on red should be prohibited and hardened center lines be installed for left-hand turns. Secondly, protective bike lanes or cycle tracks have not been adopted as the default bike roadway designed by the City of Lawrence's Department of Municipal Services and Operations 2022 Plan Preparation and Design Guidelines Handbook. The city's design standards say that bikeway elements at a minimum must comply with the countywide bikeway plan. However, the countywide bikeway plan does not outline any plans for protected bike lanes, as I'm sure you're all aware. This is unacceptable and sets the bar extremely low for vulnerable road users in this community. I urge the commission to adopt Trek's bicycle and pedestrian crossing design recommendations, but to downgrade the city's level of comfort ratings for shared use paths, to prioritize protected bike lanes and build out a true all ages and abilities bike network. Additionally, the MMTC should push the city's MSO to adopt better on-street bikeway design standards and the MPO to revise the countywide bikeway plan to include protected bike lanes on all arterial and collector streets. Mm -hmm. We must adopt a clear vision of building out an all ages and abilities bike network for our community. Thank you. Shall I speak next? Point of information, everyone in the commission room is muted right now. Yes, you may speak next. Okay. You ready for me? Yes, JT Thornburg. Okay. Consultants are like light, light posts, lamp posts. It can be used for support or illumination. Regarding the Idaho stop, the recommendation is exactly what staff wanted. In reading that one paragraph recommendation, I see that the city should continue to advocate for full legislation uh, regarding Idaho stop. That, if there's been any urging from the city, it certainly hasn't come from this body and I want, would like to know why. Um, I'm, I'm raising this issue, not because it's my issue. My issue is bike parking and has been for many years. I'm raising it because I'd like to save the life of a very particular child and a very particular cyclist. At one time, I thought that was Nick because that, that cyclist and child came out of Pinckney and used 6th Street which is no place for a child and a 
tag along or trail behind bike. Um, now, I, I have several issues with the report and I'll go through them. One is dropping this thing at Friday at closing time didn't leave much time for um, many people to try and digest. Number two, no specific input from knowledgeable Lawrence cyclists. There are three individuals that I know of who have urged the city to adopt this. Two of us are very experienced urban cyclists and have been hit by cars and would not have been if the Idaho stop were enforced. Unfortunately, neither of them are here to talk about it. They might've been if there was some time to, um, for them to look at it. The other one was a city commissioner at the retreat that was at the Carnegie building. That commissioner specifically asked the MMTC to look at this issue. Why did he favor it? I have no idea. Maybe he was hit too, but the, the commission never did until I asked it to be brought up and it was brought up with no background and it went nowhere. At 9.2.1, the pros and cons begins with a safety, um, safety item, but is not specific about drivers and is specific about drivers blind spots. That was not my case when I was hit uh, and would not have been with the um, presence of the Idaho stop, neither with the other fellow that I know of. He does some stuff, yeah. Sorry, JT, uh, it seems that the timer actually muted you as well. Did you have a sentence to uh, finish up though? We lost you at exactly three minutes. The report is not the report is not sensitive to the develop the momentum of this issue and how it's come about um, across the country. Colorado had several cities that had adopted it before the state did, and here's a development from the city from the district of of Columbia. They they dropped the right on red in favor of the Idaho stop. I haven't even read all this because it's just weeks old. So, um, okay. Thank you for your comments. That's uh, that's our time. Is there anybody else online that we haven't seen raise their hand yet? Does not appear to be the case. Oh. Are we still muted? Jessica, are you hearing us? I can hear you. Okay, cool. We're back. Okay, to the commission for any further discussion before we close up the agenda item. So I think it's important that we label the this guidance with the word crossing. Yeah, that's what I was, I was um, going to say. There's a lot of work that needs to happen around, I think, bike design guidelines, but the issue that we were trying to address here was around crossing safety and i feel like we just need to be clear like this the scope of this is to improve the safety when people are walking or riding their bikes across streets so um that'd be my 
last piece of feedback, just label it, maybe even throw in something that explains the context, like the limitation of this guideline is really specifically around crossing um, and that there are other issues related to the safety of pedestrians and bicycling facilities that aren't aren't intended to be addressed in this document. And I think that kind of brings up a similar issue that Chris touched upon that I was I was going to ask, but wasn't really sure how to ask it. And it was, you know, how does this get implemented? And it sounds like there's a couple of potential options, right? It could be a checklist like the complete streets checklist. It could be its own set of standards, much like the MSO design standards are, or it could be incorporated into the existing street design standards for MSO. So I don't know what you guys had in mind, but if you have any comments or thoughts so far, I'd be curious to hear what the what the plan is. Uh, no, I'm not aware of any particular uh, method that uh, City Engineer Dave Cronin had uh, envisioned for this, but I, I think you know we can have that figured out when we bring it to you next. Okay, fair enough. And yeah, I just wanted to echo what Charlie was saying. I mean, personally, I do think that having protected bike lanes is somewhat of a baseline to aim for would be appropriate. I don't necessarily think this is that document. So I do think that we're probably gonna have to have talks in the future about the countywide bike plan and the MSO street design standards. Cause I think it probably lives there or it would if there was kind of a minimum standard of bike lanes. Does that kind of track with where you're thinking this would go? Yeah, it seems to make sense to be, um, you know, uh, associated with the MSO's design criteria. Okay. Yeah, I think it's an important conversation to, to have, but maybe not at this point, unfortunately. So um, that also brings up the idea about the Idaho stop. And it is true that we've kind of had starts and stops around discussing this over for three or four years now. Um, it seems like at this point, the recommendation is that due to potential confusion it might cause with, you know, city limits and stuff that we should probably just drop it until the state does something. Given how different Lawrence's politics are to the rest of the state, I'm not holding my breath. I mean, I'd be really surprised if that ever happens. So, um, I mean, since other independent municipalities in Colorado have done this before the state did, it sounds like there is a pathway. It has been done before. So we wouldn't be pioneers just in Kansas. So. I mean, I would, I would definitely advocate for trying to look into this again somehow. Like, is it a city thing? Is it a county thing? How do we do it? And I think that's probably a discussion with MPO because if it's confusing at the city limits, the city limits are confusing. If you look at a map there, it's a huge amoeba. Like, the county, not so much. It's a square. So I think it would be maybe more appropriate to have this at the county level instead, which is not really your guys' jurisdiction, right? So I think that's, um, you know, Jessica, do you have any comments on that and how it could be? A well, I imagine thing? that's standard traffic ordinance, which is adopted by local jurisdictions. So you would need to do that with the local governments. That's my understanding of if you were going to oh. do something locally, because okay. the, the governing of that, like the MPO doesn't do anything with, we don't have ordinances or laws about traffic regulation. You would need to do that right. with the local governments that adopt standard traffic ordinance. So if, the, if Douglas County were to adopt the Idaho stop, would that mean that by default, Lawrence also has an Idaho stop? Or once you get in the city limits, suddenly Douglas yeah, County Yeah, I would believe that there would need to be two different, if you were doing something in the county, you'd be talking about unincorporated parts of the county and every local government who adopts mm. the standard traffic ordinance. Okay. That That's does make my understanding of how we've talked about 
things that are in the standard traffic ordinance before. Of course, an attorney and legal advisors would need to be involved in that. Okay. I'm not really sure how much more we can advocate it as an MTC versus what we've tried already to say, like, we'd like to look into this. And then it's, there's usually discussion over, well, it doesn't really make any sense. It should be at the state. Okay. Well, I don't know what else to say, really. Um, anybody have any ideas? Could we get a lawyer involved? I mean, <laughs> we have a whole office of counsel, right? I mean, would it be possible to have them issue what they're, Thoughts are and say, like, what are the pitfalls if we were to adopt Idaho Stop just in the city of Lawrence, you know? I'd say realistically, the only way something like that could have uh, a viable, um, yeah, I guess, usable system is if we got other cities um, in Kansas to adopt Idaho Stops as well. Uh, I'm not familiar with the Colorado uh, method. I know Stephen referenced it in his presentation and it's in the track report, but. Um, if you had multiple municipalities adopt this, especially bigger ones in Kansas, then um, folks might be able to uh, be more, you know, accommodating of it. And we might see state policy follow after the fact. Mm. Um, but I agree with what you said earlier in that if Lawrence were the pioneer for something like this, it would never happen at the state level. Mm. But I think if we communicate with other like-minded local governments, you know, like Olathe, um, KCK, Wichita, um, if they want to, you know, that's, I think, realistically where something like this could be passed and actually have um, a meaningful system in place. Okay. That's good. That's a decent option. Don't be the only one in the fight, basically. <laughs> okay. Any other discussions here? Well, I think it'd be useful to figure out how do we get some input from the community about an Idaho stop. People that, Lawrence listens, right? Yeah, how did, I mean, we missed a chance maybe with the MPO process because um, I'm not sure where that's at, but maybe the next time the MPO does the update to the bike plan in the community input process, surveys that are used could include information around Idaho stops and just get a sense from the public what the understanding of it is, what the support of it would be. And Charlie, that would be in 2024. <laughs> okay, so we're not, we didn't miss it then. So that's bike up. plan, bike plan update. Yeah, it would be, that's our psych five-year cycle if it was adopted okay. in 2019 as 2024. So maybe thinking about how do we start to collect some information from the public about the support for it, the understanding of it. You know, the concerns seem to be that people would be confused. So it is it something that people would understand? Um, it doesn't take much to confuse Lawrence drivers. You've seen roundabouts. I, I agree <laughs> with you. I think we, we suffer from a lot of young drivers and it's going to be tough for them to understand what the rules are. I wish I could say it's just the young drivers, but well, I know what you mean, though. Yeah. Okay. Um, we, we have a hand raised, and I should point out that technically public comment has ended. If you keep it to an additional minute, JT, would that be possible? Just as a quick addition here. Thank you. That would be fine. At, at the MPO meeting when this was raised here over a, year, over a year ago, the state bicycle coordinator said it would be helpful if some city would step forward. 
Now, I'd be satisfied just to know that this body educated itself about what the Idaho stop is and benefits and do what this report says. So do something, send a letter, send a letter to the state, get um, you mean Marcy, Marcy, Marcy Francisco. Okay. Thank you for the ideas. Okay. Sounds like there's a couple of, of potential options here so that Lawrence doesn't have to forge their own path. So, okay. Was there anything else that we wanted to bring up? I know this has been a, a long, long agenda item, but it is an important agenda item. So we don't get these every day. If not, then we're good. Um, Stephen, thank you very much for your time, Tan as well. Thanks guys for staying late and, and for all the public commenters. I think this was a good discussion. So excited to see where this goes. Thank you very much. Okay, with that, we're going on to, well, would anybody request a quick break or shall we forge ahead to number three? I'm sensing this is gonna be a maybe 20 to 30 minute agenda item, depending on how deep in the weeds we wanna get. But it's kind of hard to tell sometimes. Take a short break. Yeah, so we do it at 8.40, we'll come back. Yeah, sounds good. Round up, all right. Quick break, everybody. Here, so if we're good to go with with AV, then I'm gonna start on agenda item number three, which is discuss transportation related projects and the 2023 capital improvement plan. So, yep, um, I'll. Okay. I will take it from here. Um, so it, just like the title says, we're we're here on this item just to discuss the CIP projects that are transportation related in 2023. Um, so it's it's my thoughts just to step through the list here and kind of give you updates on each of these projects as we go. And, uh, you know, feel free to jump in and, and ask questions during each project. And then, you know, we can circle back at the end and, and hit up any other questions that may have been missed or, or popped into somebody's mind. So. Um, with with that, we'll start with the, the Lawrence Loop Iowa Street Crossing. We've got uh, funds in next year for design. Um, really, the update on this project is that um, we're, we're trying to collaborate with various factions at KDOT for construction funding, uh, potentially um, design funding as well, getting this incorporated into the SLT expansion project, which uh, lets in 2024. Um, and the last last update really was an analysis of um, potential uh, grade separated crossings. We looked at tunnel options and bridge options, and I think we narrowed it down to kind of a couple for, for KDOT to give us more information on more detail. Um, so that's really the next step. Could you fill us in on, on how this fits into the KDOT expansion projects? Because I think originally this particular project was not going to be included as part of the, the cost match, like the in-kind cash match for the SLT expansion. But I've, I thought I heard that it wasn't originally even proposed as part of it, or maybe it was and KDOT just was like, no, we don't want it. You're correct on both of those. This okay. wasn't originally um, proposed with the SLD expansion project, and it was not a part of the original city contributions for funding. Okay. Um, essentially, you know, we've had this in the CIP. It's one of the top projects on our bike, um, non-motorized bike list. Um, and so we met with KDOT to discuss the potential for funding and adding this onto this project. And, you know, we were, it was kind of very well received by the SLT project manager and okay. KDOT transportation planning. So we're just, we're trying to take strides and to keep the momentum going on that. Okay. That's a, 
better news than I guess I had, I had assumed because I feel like when Kato was here, they didn't seem particularly receptive to it. So it sounds like talks are going well. So yes, I guess so. Continue to push that. All right, moving on then, um, another Lawrence Loop project that's um, from 8th Street North to 7th Street or the Santa Fe Depot. We've got money for construction of that next year. Staff is doing, and we have a concept design in-house, uh, but it's kind of contingent on easement from the property owner. Um, so uh, that is an ongoing process. Um, once the easement's dedicated and a design concept really is approved, the next step would be to finish design plans and then go to construction next year. <laughs> And this is the one that's going to go along the tracks behind that Quonset hut type building, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. That's the current concept. Okay. Moving on to our third project on the list, the Lawrence Loop Call River Commons 7th Street to Constant Park um, project planning design money for next year. Um, Again, that is a kind of a work in progress where the, the idea is to move forward with a um, um, raise implementation grant in 2024 for construction in 2025. So yeah, again, it's contingent on grant funding. Um, the city does have uh, the funds available for the match in, in out years of the CIP. Cool. Next on our list um, is the, I believe, check my list, the last of the Lawrence Loop projects, Michigan Street to Sanders Shaw Park. Um, we are near um, final design on that project. Construction slated for next year. Um, we kind of hit a little hiccup where we've had some, uh, a, a critical property owner has kind of changed support for the project. So we're, we're in, in for, uh, for various reasons, uh, but um, we're going to kind of reassess that at the beginning of the year and, and see if we still have a path forward with, with what we've proposed. So um, maybe we'll have an update on that um, towards the spring. Can I ask a question about that? Sure. Have we seen the the design already? Yes, we like we, we had. Yeah. yeah, we brought field check plans uh, maybe <clears throat> late summer, early fall. I was just out today um, walking around the trail around the pond there, and I noticed a lot of people had tents that are camping out in the woods. Um, would the trail, how would the trail impact where people are camping? Um, I don't know that I could surmise what the impacts would be. I know property owners definitely have the concern of what what well, uh, implications. In Birchin Park, the trail um, seemed to push people out of the area. Um, people used to camp along the river all the time. There used to be a dirt path there, right? And I would walk it during lunch. Um, and now you don't see that as much. So my sense would be that if people are using a trail it's going to be less comfortable for people to um, try to camp out there. But I was wondering, you know, where, where would they then go to? Because they tend to, um, they don't want to be around others that are just out, you know, hiking or running or riding their bikes. So. Yep, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, this project would essentially provide connectivity much further west on the trail system. Um, so it's, you know, impacts would be a little more far reaching, I think, in that regard. There's a lot of like uh, semi wilderness there along the river, though. A lot. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there was space. a whole uh, group of folks that were congregating around a trash can or trash bin, I guess, a really large one that was 
near that park or around the edge of the park. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't like that a couple of years ago. So I think it's just if that's going to be part of the trail, um, I would imagine they would impact people that are trying to live there. That might be outside MSO's jurisdiction, unfortunately. I'm assuming it's more. I just imagine it, it's, it complicates everything. So yeah. figured it'd be worth at least raising it up. Yeah. Um, any other comments on this item or? Okay. Okay. Um, next project on the list is bicycle wayfinding signage. Um, we've got the planning money of the fifty thousand dollars in twenty twenty three. Um, the description in our CIP report: uh, wayfinding system to guide bicyclists to their destinations. Uh, project to include creation of sign standards, including information on signs, placement of signs, and destination hierarchy. Um, we're planning on coordinating this work with the MPO. So. Um, is this going to be consultant led? I do not know the answer to that. Okay. At this time, I think we're. I think their plan is to coordinate with Jessica at the beginning of the year and kind of plan the path ahead. Okay. Um. I think I, I may have brought this up before. I may have not. So stop me if this sounds completely redundant. Um. If there's any possibility of engaging with maybe the Lawrence Art Center or Van Gogh or another one of the community artists art. Um, organizations, it seems like that would tie in pretty well to what public transit is doing with the various bus stops and neighborhoods where they're kind of adding smart to it and making it more than just infrastructure. So I would just say if there's any possibility of doing that, I would say that perhaps that could even be used towards some of that 2% for art on larger capital projects, like the rest of the Lawrence Loop, for example. Are, are those subject to that same requirement or is it only for vertical stuff? I do not know. Okay. Because I've never seen it before, but I mean, it seems like it's for capital capital improvements. So anyway, cool. Um, ADA sidewalk construction. Sorry. Yep, ADA sidewalk construction. We've got eighty thousand dollars in design. Um, these are the the sidewalk segments that we inspect through the sidewalk improvement program and start compiling a list really of sidewalk segments that are in such bad condition we don't want to repair them. We recognize the investment needs to be a full replacement. So this would go towards whatever those routes are that are selected getting designed. Construction money would follow the next year. Sorry to stop you on all these. Um, yeah, this, was, um, this was something I've heard come up kind of as I'm hearing rumbles around town. And that is that for the sidewalks that were in kind of bad condition, but not super bad, the property owner was generally on the hook for fixing it. How does this factor into it? If it's going to be somebody's entire frontage, but is the city paying for it or are they going to back charge the property owners? It's exactly the same. So, you know, before that project begins, we would do an inspection on there and whatever hazardous sidewalk there, that was what they would be responsible for. That way they're treated equally. Okay. So in that case, the construction is not going to be nearly as much as it would be if the uh, city was taking on the whole thing, right? Right. Okay. That's That actually, I think, puts a lot of concerns to rest because there were some concerns like, well, is that really, that sounds like that's incentivizing people to just really let their whole sidewalk degrade so they don't have to worry about it anymore. Not yeah. a problem. So. Yeah. The, and this this project recognizes that, you know, we're, we're bringing this sidewalk into AD, full ADA compliance and that's not the responsibility of the property owner. Oh, okay. Wait a second. So if it's not the responsibility of the property owner to, oh, to bring it into full ADA compliance. So the sidewalk improvement program is focused on reducing trip hazards. Okay. So there's a, a vast difference in really level of service there between projects and in products. Okay. So does that then distinguish those 
two lines, the ADA sidewalk reconstruction and then the sidewalk bike pet improvements. Is that sort of the d difference then? If something is ADA required, then it's that pot of money. So yeah, jumping into the next project, the sidewalk bike pet improvements, that's the money that the five-year bike ped plan money comes from. Mm -hmm. So really $675,000 is, is what we've got to spend in our five-year plan. The million dollars is assumed KDOT or federal grants that are going to go into that as well. Okay. Any other follow-up questions on either of those before I move on? I think I get it. So it, it sounds like if your sidewalk in front of your house has degraded to such an extent that you can't just do a couple of patches here and there, you still will have to pay for it, right? Yes. Unless there's some, you know, city complications like it's a street tree or something, right? Correct. Yeah. All right. That covers it. Thanks. Um, the 6th and K-10 interchange improvements. So we've got um, $1.5 million uh, essentially in in match for KDOT for that project. Um, we've got a uh, February 23 letting for that. A city-state agreement should be forthcoming from KDOT for that project as well. Um, and, and really that million and a half contribution was for kind of the continuance of 6th Street further to the west in um, like a city arterial fashion. Okay. Queens Road, 6th Street to North City limits. Um, that project is actually starting this week, I believe. Um, so the, the the money you see here is, is a continue, continuation of the construction funding that is starting this year. Okay. Next project is Massachusetts Street, 14th to 23rd Street Multimodal Improvement. We've got $150,000 for design of that project next year. Um, this will be one of those projects that we uh, bring concepts to uh, multimodal for recommendation, uh, similar to what we did with Wakarusa Street and the process that played it on East 19th Street. So if I could suggest for this one, I don't know if this was part of the plan or the budget, so you know, if there's not budget for it, feel free to, to uh, say no, I suppose. But when we read it, East 23rd Street, that's currently under construction, there was like a whole committee that dealt with that um, to, to kind of make sure that the public was, you know, buying into whatever design was gonna happen on the early stage. I feel like, I feel like every time the city attempts to do something downtown without a ton of involvement. It always seems to generate some kind of backlash from people feeling like they are involved with something like the downtown master plan, um, the parklets, the new bar expansion policies. It always it, it's such a treasure part of downtown that people who live nowhere near it still have a deep connection to it. So I would just I'd highly recommend that. I mean, I'd love to see it on MMTC as well, but I think it would probably help to get some extra session or two with the public if at all possible. We'll definitely consult, consult with our public engagement professionals on that to make sure we're we're following the correct processes that are expected of us. Okay, thanks. Naismith, um, this is actually the reconstruction of Naismith from 19th to 23rd Street. Um, design money next year, $300,000. Um, this is kind of the project that we alluded to a few years ago when we we're talking about the Naismith Mobility Enhancement Project. So that project um, is kicking off right now. This constructing a shared use, most of it, mostly shared use path on the east side of, of Naismith from 23rd to 19th Street. This project will follow up, um, hopefully uh, make all the needed connections. for recommendation to this uh, commission. Okay.
11th Street Reconstruction, Indiana and Ohio, and Louisiana 11th to 12th. That's a, a C, just a CIP project for construction. Um, I think we've got design working right now with consultants. So uh, again, another project that uh, I would expect to see a concept field check plans brought to the commission at some point um, in 23. Sixth Street, um, Iowa to Mass Street maintenance project. Um, I think this is one uh, was alluded to earlier in the evening in the discussion. Um, got construction funding in 23 for that project. I believe it's currently under design. So is this one not on the street maintenance program because it is from a different pot of money, it sounds like? Yes, it's a capital improvement project. So for uh, all intents and purposes of the planning that it's a little bit separated. What designated capital, sorry, what, what separates a capital improvement project? It's $100,000, right? Uh, I believe that is the current definition, but I'm not 100% okay. certain on that. So I guess the question is, how do the other six Street ones not get in the, like, yeah. it seemed like they're of the similar magnitude in terms of just like how much they cost and where they are. It just seems like there's gotta be something else that's differentiating these and I can't figure it out. Um, I don't have a good answer for you tonight. It's not like anything's a full redesign either. Like they're just reconstruction, so that's yeah, odd. Um, well, I guess yeah. the Sixth Street was a mill patch and overlay. So, is this is this project more than that? From Iowa to Massachusetts Street on the street maintenance um, map, the Sorry. area on Sixth Street going uh, west from Iowa. It's colored red, and that's mill patch and overlay. So is the project that's on this list that we're looking at now, is it different it, from a mill patch and overlay? It's a little bit more because we've got some a lot of waterline work we're going to do while we're in there. We're going to add the shared use path from Iowa to Wisconsin as part of our bike network, and I think we're actually going to do some traffic signal improvements at Massachusetts Street. So that's what makes it a CIP project distinct from a street maintenance project? It needed to be funded because it has more more going on than I, just I don't recall the genesis it. of the project, so I, I would have to do some research on that to see how it got separated out. Okay. Do you by chance know what stage of design they're currently in, or is it pretty much done? No, I do not know. Okay. I would, I mean, if possible, I'd be really curious to see what the, the design is, um, because I know there is going to be a new shared use path on the north side for a couple blocks at least, so I assume that might not be the only geometrical change. So... If possible, I'd, I'd kind of like to see what that design looks like right now. Depending on where it is. I mean, it might be in concept, it might be ready to bid. Only reason I say that is now, you know, we, we haven't fully adopted it yet because it's still in draft format, but the bike and ped crossings um, are really going to have a lot to do with that section of 6th Street, which has a lot more people crossing. Um, mm. Just because it's the two, you know, two most walkable neighborhoods in town are kind of on on either side. So I, I'd be curious to see, like, if we were to apply what Trek has come up with so far, um, you know, even just like suggestions, how would that change how we reapproach this design? Um, especially because so, so far I'm under the impression that street maintenance programs aren't really meant to change the geometry. Like in between the curb and the curb, what you see is what you get. But we are adding a shared use path here, so it seems like, well, that barrier's kind of been broken a little bit. So, I don't know. 
And that barrier was broken because it was a planned project we had and had some funding for, and we recognized internally that there's some efficiencies and cost savings we could do by throwing that onto that project, having that contractor knock it out. Right. That was the one that I think got submitted for grant funding a couple times and just didn't make it for some reason, right? Um, we, we've always submitted, and we'll actually we'll talk about this in the staff report, to the west of Iowa is where we continually submit applications mm-hmm. and are not successful. Weird. <laughs> I wonder if we did sidewalks and bike tracks. <laughs> That's a different conversation, though. <laughs> okay. I guess to just clarify your question, Nick. It looks like your phase for 23 is construction, so the design work has already been completed, I'm assuming? That's what it looks like. I don't believe it's been completed. I know there's been significant progress, but I don't recall if it's been completed. Do these have, like... Are there months that you're imagining? I guess I'm wondering if there's a point where we're going to see it. Is that that what you're asking for? Before it starts the construction? Is that coming to us first? or? I I will have to look into that and see where that's at and and make sure we get a response to you. Yeah, and if it's too late, it is what it is, right? But I think if we have a chance to have input, it would be nice. I guess, okay. Sorry. I guess it gets back to the if our like what determines which projects come to us is that should we not expect each of these construction projects to have come to us at some point before they they, they they do they do come to you and Dustin just did the update for me and we're still conceptual plans on that so we're, we're not quite to the point where we'd bring that to MMTC for review like we do with field check plans okay um, since our conceptual plans, though, you know, the earlier in design you want to change something, the less it costs in the overall lifespan of the project. I mean, I know we don't have our crossing policy in place yet, but, I mean, is it too early to maybe look and see, like, by the time we adopt the crossing policy, the plans might be out to bid, and then, like, maybe we would have missed our chance to have kind of a better product than we would have otherwise. I don't know. I I just worry that we're going to have a missed opportunity to take a street that's kind of a kind of a pain in the neck and make it kind of good um, based on what Trek has kind of started here. Yep, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think it's a conversation we can have with, with the project manager and, and see what we can do there. Okay. And, and we are fairly early on in the project. Okay, that's encouraging. Okay, okay um, third our Iowa Street reconstruction, Irving Hill Road to 23rd Street. Um, if you recall or are familiar with this corridor, we kind of um, go from the intersection at Iowa, or pardon me, intersection at Clinton Parkway, intersection at 19th Street, intersection at um, 15th Street. So it's really kind of connect that whole corridor with the same pavement section that um, is in the intersections. And we've got the um, design money um, in 23 for that. Next is the street maintenance program. Uh, we just got the update earlier tonight on that, so I won't go any more detail there. And lastly is the uh, Wakarusa Research Parkway to 
Clinton Parkway um, construction for next year. Um, we've got uh, the schedule for that is tentatively to go to construction in probably about March or April next year, depending on easement acquisition and utility relocation, but uh, it's moving along nicely. And that's all I've got for the, the CIP project update. If there's any other questions, we'd be happy to entertain those. So <clears throat> I'm just thinking generally, like when you have the phase called design, it, next question about the 23rd, East 23rd Street. I know it was a different process because there was additional funding um, that the, uh, MPO received, I believe. Mm. So, what um, what was it? Seemed like it was a valuable process, and I'm wondering how much time and funding was required for that process to um, be used, and is that something that we need to spend some time thinking about? Like, is is that part of design, or was there is there a phase before design that you would have considered that East 23rd Street project? I would have cons considered that a planning phase. Okay. And it was a, it was heavily invested in public aid engagement and concepts, you know, working out what uh, was, was a winnable solution for the community. So when do we decide or when, when would you suggest a planning phase is needed? Or is there, like in that case, there was a funding opportunity and I think um, the MPO saw that as a critical project that would benefit from additional planning. But the next point about the Mass Street, it kind of feels similar to me. Like there's people talked over the years about putting a protected bike lane on Mass and maybe this is the time to do that. Well, when we had the, uh, idea of a bike boulevard, you know, try to implement that. It caused a lot more public reaction than anyone expected. Well, there so, was a pretty good planning process with that one. Yeah, There's so I just think, else. what's the way to get, um, to kind of acknowledge that some of these street projects could really benefit from a planning phase where it involves greater engagement, greater um kind of feedback from the public about how they want to see a road rebuilt uh, yeah obviously there's a cost associated directly with that um not all well, time as well so um depending on any urgency that's involved um other than that i think we just need to be consulting our 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 public engagement professionals here at the city and you know really get a process in place to help identify those projects and, and what processes are going to be important to those projects i think each one will be different um you know a commercial corridor on east 23rd versus a, a residential corridor on massachusetts street i think they're going to have different needs i mean part of that is also commercial yes so i mean it just feels Kind of similar to me. I know a lot of it's residential, but in that same area, we have the Bike Boulevard, you know, coming to head. And East 23rd Project is only a few blocks away. So in that part of the community, there's been, I guess, some efforts to do 
more community engagement around street design. And so this one just feels similar enough to me that it seems like it worth, it'd be worth having some discussion. And I don't know that there's funding available on the MPO side to do anything, but if I don't know what that even costs us, like as, as a organization, if there's funding available to do something. Oh, Jessica, you're there still? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm still here. Um, so that's, that 23rd Street study cost us $100,000. Um, it was intended to be designed as a charrette, which is a specific type of public engagement that engages a group of people um, in more intensive design that's over a shorter time frame, where you really work with kind of conceptual landscape architects to draft stuff out and make options and draw it as you go, kind of in a scenario way that gets all of the values from all of the stakeholders in the room at the same time. Um, and that was probably one of the, one of the big experiences I think we've used that with uh, in that I can recall. Similarly, I think you'll recall there have been other bigger planning processes around projects like Ninth Street or Castle that also have been had more public engagement processes, but they didn't necessarily use the charrette design process. And I think what if you're talking just specifically about that, I guess I would ask you, is that a process you thought was effective at getting to compromise and shared values or recognizing values and compromise in that process? Because I would assume, Jake, that there is money for public engagement in the design of whatever happens on Mass Street. So it's just about scoping the engagement to the budget. So that's a question for Charlie and one for Jake. I, I mean, my sense is that there was something that was, I mean, I, th I think people regarded the East 23rd Street uh, design process or planning process as successful. And other efforts, um, appreciate you mentioning the Castle project, because um, that was also one where there was an intention around engagement and it, it didn't feel as successful, for sure. So, you know, what are we learning from those two examples? And if we're trying to be, to introduce, you know, something more than just repaving a street, like maybe this is a good, maybe this particular project, if I had to pick one of these on our list, that one just kind of hits me with, yeah, you just say mass and people start to think they're, it's relevant to them, right? Even though this is not downtown mass, this is like, further south, but they're still going to feel there's an emotional connection to just Mass Street. And I wouldn't be shocked if people want to be involved in what happens with that street, either whether they live there or have a business there or live on the far edge of town. So it just, that one just seems like if there's an opportunity for engagement out of all this, that one feels like it's the closest to the um, so one that we could learn from in terms of how do we get better at public engagement around our projects. And it sounds like that's the plan is to take that to the public engagement experts here to kind of see what they think, right? So yep. Yep. sounds like you got it covered, which is good. They're relatively new positions, right? The public I mean, I'm saying, I, see, I guess I'd be careful to say you got it covered. So I, I feel like I, I want to say, yes, you got it covered, but 
I also recognize that they were scheduled to, to provide a study session topic and they're not available. So I don't know that, I guess I'm not confident that's suddenly gonna be a great resource for us to lean on. Um, they're probably being pulled by every department in the city. Obviously I'm, I'm pretty new in that this is my first meeting. Um, is there an ability to have an extended conversation with the public engagement experts on staff, maybe at the next meeting or in a future one yeah. with the commission? Yeah, we were actually working on that for a future study session. Um, their, their availability wasn't where um, we anticipated it was. We were planning on doing that for a study session this month, and they've let us know um, towards the beginning of next year they would be ready to have that discussion. So I imagine that'll probably come up in the retreat discussion on future items. Well, maybe this provides some context for hmm. that conversation. Yeah, we could center a discussion around it and also use the 23rd Street you know, to kind of inform like what's what's happened in the past too. Yeah. Um, okay. On the topic of Mass Street, at one point there was a whole bunch of projects that I think were combined into an ensemble that was like improving planters downtown, retractable bollards, parking amenities. There's a whole bunch of stuff that was Mass Street related in the downtown portion. Do you know what happened to that? Is it unfunded for like the next couple of years? I'm, I'm not aware of the details of that. Okay, no worries. Uh, okay. The other one was at one point there was a street sweeper that was on the capital improvement plan, and I, I seem to remember it got funded, but it was, I don't know, it was like a specifically small street sweeper for like shared use paths, protected bite lanes, stuff like that. Possibly a combo snowblower, I don't know. So I don't know if that's still in the plans or not. <laughs> it seemed weird to have on the capital improvement plan to begin with. It's a fleet vehicle, but there it was. It's a strange one. Um, and then finally, so. Carol Bowen reached out to me, geez, probably months ago at this point. Apparently there was at some point a plan to do a corridor study along 23rd near Mass Street or Louisiana or something. Do either you or Jessica, do you know anything about that? It sounds like it was on the capital improvement plan and no longer is. I can't validate that statement, but it was, it was interesting enough that I wanted to see if anybody knew more about it. Uh, to my knowledge, it has gotten tabled or it's unfunded. I don't know where it is in the plan. I haven't heard about it again. Okay. Um, the planning office began their neighborhood and area plans and land development code, and I didn't see any specific money for, I thought it was maybe a consulted project, but I didn't see any additional funding in there for that. I haven't heard about it again. Okay. Sounds more like that was under the under the jurisdiction of planning and development then rather than MSO. Okay. Fair enough. That's all I have. Any other questions from the commission? Okay. Any public comment on this item? Obviously not in the room, but anybody online? Um, not at this time. All right. Thanks, Jake, for walking us through that. Now we can go on to staff items. Uh, Dustin Smith, uh, Senior Project Engineer with MSO. I uh, just have a quick kind of status update on our Old West Lawrence traffic calming pilot. We got our uh, devices installed week of October 10th, and currently we're in our third week of data collection, third and final week. So hopefully start to see the data next week um, with, again, the, the goal of getting back to this body for December 5th meeting with a recommendation for a permanent install. Uh, we did uh, push the Lawrence Listen survey at the request of the neighborhood. They wanted the data available 
when people were taking the survey. So um, working on the timeline for when we can get the data out, get the survey open and, and hopefully still get it closed, get results back with our December 5th recommendation. But other than that, we're we're tracking with the timeline we provided last month. Sounds good. Sounds like things are progressing at a steady pace to, you know, kind of make sure that this one is done as right as we can so that it gets, you know, adapted to future neighborhoods with a lot of lessons learned, which is great. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks. Yep. Uh, Kata, cost share update kind of alluded to earlier, but yeah, an unfortunate update. And that's, we did not win the, when the cost share award, um, which we were hoping for, this was for the shared use path on sixth street from Iowa to Lawrence Avenue. Um, this is a project we have under design. We're wrapping up design. We're, we're going to build it next year. We've got the funds in our non-motorized plan. Our, our hope was to, you know, um, add funding into that project and, and help free up potentially more funds within the plan. So, um, the, the, I guess the end game here is to have a follow-up conversation with KDOT to, to, to find out, you know, where our, our project fell short because we felt we were fairly aggressive, especially with our um, contribution being 50%. So um, I've reached out and we'll, we'll have that conversation, see if we can learn something to, to help us maybe next time around. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. And the, the last staff update is on Lawrence Loop tunnel lighting. Um, Commissioner Brian, you brought that up, I believe, at the last meeting. Um, the two uh, tunnels out on the South Lawrence Trafficway, 6th Street and Bob Billings, don't have any lights in them currently. Um, spoke with Parks and Rec on, on the problem, and it's our, our plan is to go forth and enter a, a CIP project through the budget process here at the start of the year and, and through the next to get some funds put in for those. Okay. So we'll, we'll have to put that in and see how it scores and is prioritized against other projects. Thank you. Nice. Okay. Um, sounds like that's it for staff items then, unless you have any others that weren't listed. No. Okay. Moving on to commission items. First is T2050 steering up committee update. And Damon, what do you think? Yeah, there's um, um, the three meetings have been scheduled for the, for the next three months. So December, uh, November 15th, December 6th, and January 5th. And I don't have, I haven't seen agenda um, on any of those, I'm not quite sure. We'll send it out tomorrow. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, we haven't met again since our last meeting. Right. Okay. Yeah. Kind of a non but, but we have three coming up. So. Okay. Anything on the climate action plan steering committee? Oh, we met, and twice in October. Um, the first was just kind of. Um, summarizing short survey that was sent out to all the steering committee, just kind of gathering up the whole group's expertise um, and reviewed. We gave them feedback on where we're interested in helping out specifically. Um, and then they summarized one of their first sort of focus group um, engagement that they did. They went to um, Baldwin City and specifically talked with emergency responders and gathered feedback from them. It was cool to see just kind of their summary. They're doing their next one in Eudora. I don't know if it's already happened yet. Um, but yeah, we've got another another meeting coming up. I think it's a monthly. Okay. Sounds good. Things are happening. 
uh, land development code steering committee update. There is no, we haven't had a meeting and I, I have no idea when the next one's scheduled January possibly. So anybody else have any, any commission items? I know Charlie, you might. Yeah, <clears throat> I just wanted to um, follow up. I had asked about this at the last meeting. Um, the school crossing guard budget. I'd like to get information about the history of that and maybe have some discussion uh, about how we might think more openly about the budget for um, supporting kids getting to school safely. Um, there's other things we could do besides just crossing guards. So it'd be helpful to know, like, if we spent $117,000 historically, then what are we currently spending? And if we're only spending half of that now, because we have fewer crossing guards, it'd be, I think, useful to consider, like, should there be funds dedicated to some other programming activities that would support um, helping kids get to school safely. Um, for instance, the walking school bus programs would be, I think, a fairly um, small budget impact, um, but might make a big difference for some of these families that would like to get their kids to school but need want a super, you know, someone to supervise that um, that walk. So I think maybe, I don't know, last five years of what was the funding amount for the for that program would be a good place to start. And where is it today? And I think we can bring it back on a staff report. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Cool. Any other commission items? Okay. Let's move on to calendar. So our next month is actually a pretty one for December, which it's usually not this full. So um, our, our current study session is going to be transportation 2050. Um, is that for the draft review or what's the plan for that study session? Do we know? Yeah, the plan for that study session is to show you where we're at in the process so far. Um, it'll be probably time just for a little bit but before we start our public comment period. So it'll give you an opportunity to see um, we didn't want to wait till we get to a final draft. We don't anticipate um, having a draft to send out to public comment until mid-January. Um, that'll be a pretty hard deadline to have a 30-day public comment period to get back for March approvals by TAC and MPO Policy Board um, in our MPO process to meet our federal deadline. Okay, sounds good. So this will just kind of be an introduction. We have some drafts of some content. We'll be showing you really high level stuff of kind of where we're at in that process. Okay. Um, on the topic of study sessions, um, based on what we've been talking about in this, I would say pretty discussion heavy meeting, there's a couple that have come up that I think we could add to our kind of dwindling uh, list. Obviously after the retreat, we're gonna have a a refresh list of things that we want to talk about based on whatever work plan we come up with. But in the meantime, uh, the three things that kind of come to mind are uh, kind of a more concerted discussion about the Idaho stop, because it, it does seem like there's enough support, not just on this commission, but elsewhere. And if we could bring in somebody from legal and, and a city commissioner or a county commissioner or both um, who is particularly interested in this, I feel like we might have a more fruitful discussion and trying to see like, what do we do about this exactly? The second study session, I think, is on Charlie's point of sort of broadening the, the 
the idea of what school crossing guard funding could be used for and maybe calling it just school travel safety funding or something like that. Something snappier. Um, safe routes. There you go. Funding. That's the one. I don't know. Just, it's, the, it's more of the programming side. Yeah. And maybe once we get a better idea of, you know, the history of the funds, what it can be used for, et cetera, then we can have a kind of a brainstorming discussion of like, how, how could we accomplish more goals with this budget? The third one was going to be on protected bike lanes, which have come up quite a few times in this meeting so far. It wasn't super clear as to where they might fit in policy, but I think it's worth a discussion um, and see like, all right, do we understand enough about the city design standards and the county bike plan to have an idea of where this might go, if this is even something that we want to talk about. So based on those three ideas, are there any that, you know, you guys want to prioritize or cut if you don't, you know, really agree that this is something that we need to discuss? I think those are all good. <clears throat> I would add back the community engagement. Yeah, it should probably be on here. Right. I think well, the, I think the other thing is that with the retreat coming up and with those four ideas to, you know, part of the retreat could be prioritizing those, you know, as far as a, a schedule for that, um, along yeah. with any other ideas that might come up. But, mm -hmm. uh, but certainly looking at how that might fold into the 2023 schedule. Okay. Um, Jake, did you get those in notes well enough to add those to the future study session topics, or should we talk offline to get those in there? I think we're good. Okay, cool. That's all I had. Any other commission items or calendar? Sorry, calendar stuff. All right. If not, then take a motion to adjourn. So moved. Motion by Commissioner Collette. Second. Second by Commissioner Botoska. All in favor, raise your hand, I guess. All right. That's All right. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody, especially for the long session, but we got some good work done. All right.